It's, it's Gentleman Jack. Jack. Crack, crack. Cue that fucking jaunty music. Nineteenth-century groveling, groveling, groveling. Good lord! <laughs> Hello. Hi. Lovely people. Oh, I didn't know if you were gonna say something. Oh uh, no, I just just happy to be back. So, well, welcome to episode two point five of our gentleman Jack historical nightcap. Shall we cheers? Oh, of course. So, what are you drinking for this episode? You have. What was it? Jim Beam honey? Or yes. Was, yeah. Honey bourbon. And I am drinking Paul Mason apple brandy. A lovely, lovely drink. I feel classy. This is a good, I mean, every episode is a good episode to have a drink, but this week has been an interesting one. How was your week? Uh, saturated. <laughs> saturated. Uh, not a dull moment. Not even like pretend. Very busy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had an Ann Lister week myself, as I'm calling it. Where I'm making so many references to Ann Lister and Gentleman Jack, it's truly reached absurd proportions and how often I find a way to reference them. But yeah, it was Ann Lister week, you know, super high highs, super low lows, great creative highs, familial highs, but then like a lot of existential lows. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you know, us Americans going through it right now in the the political stuff and then my friend having her situation with assault i'm just like yo like why life also what are men but uh you know what i'm not gonna go off on my misandry rant i think everyone should just be happy that candace is not in jail for finding her street justice this past week <laughs> for my wronged friend but yeah it was, a, it was i'm happy to be back in the studio getting back into the good feels although we will be bringing up some not so good feels as it relates to Anlista and yeah. her life but i'm happy to be back discussing one of the many or i won't say many but one of the few things that gives me respite during these dark and stormy times oh was that yeah, <laughs> sometimes i see your head going i'm like because it's like i'm trying to think of where where is the safe haven in this in this moment? Is the safe haven uh, with M? I don't think it is. Is the safe, safe haven? Safe haven. With... Are you right, talking about exactly? the I thought you meant for me. Where's my oh, safe haven? Oh. We all need on safe another haven. planet, Venus. No, um, and safe haven. Ann Walker. No. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, Ann Walker. In between those accounts? ties, in between those legs, I mm-hmm. I don't actually think Anne had a safe place. I think her safest place was Mariana in her mind, but I don't think Mariana was ever safe in reality. Right. And I don't think Mariana was good for her psyche or her self-esteem. So safety, not exactly something I would put to Mariana. Arguably, she would have been safer with Mrs. Barlow. She would have been safer with Eliza Rain. She would have been safer perhaps with Isabella Northcliffe, even though they had contrasting things about their personality, but definitely the least safe bitch she fucked around with was Mariana. Because even with a Veer, Veer's too busy being like a, a whimsical heteroflexible to really like be responsible for like deep heavy baggage like Mariana is. So I don't know. Uh, we should mention for those of you who did not participate in our poll that happened online on the Twitterverse and other places where by now you already are aware that episode two of Gentleman Jack Crack was, it was a bit long. Yeah, it was, oof, it was a doozy. When we looked at that recording file, when we were done, we were like, how did we, how did this trend towards nearly five hours? Yeah, I, I still can't figure that out. It didn't out. make sense because we were sitting here and we were talking and um, I just, 
I don't know. I still don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> and so we sent out a poll for those of you who are not following us on the online things, requesting, you know, some feedback from the listeners, from you guys about, hey, should we do this insanity, this Iliad length level of a podcast entry in one release or two? And while at least a third of you who voted, I think we got about 40 people all together, a third of you were like, break that shit in two. I'm so sorry that you had to receive it. You had to receive it in one big part because, well, blame your fellow listeners because they outranked you. And we were like, oh, okay. We did end up shaving some stuff off of it. I know many of you made requests, like, don't you fucking dare shave a thing off of that recording. But we had to. We had to shave a little. I am a little sad that my elaborate, elaborate gay fantasy of running off with my my gayby that I stole slash adopted with my... Gwendolyn Christie, tall length wife. Just, I had to cut that. That, that had to go. I got, it got cut. Listen, we have to create some sort of platform <laughs> to put to put shit. these things. You had some pretty intensive rambles as well. I mean, we both do that, so that's kind of the that's kind of the issue. That's kind of the issue. There was like a whole solid half hour we were laughing about some bullshit that had just <laughs> that just had to go. So we're sorry that you guys missed out on that. I'm sure a few of you who were like, they said it was over four, and this edit is three hours and 30 minutes and change what happened well that's what happened guys so for those of you who were surprised who were not aware that our episode lengths could sometimes hit an end game length hit fucking what are movies that have intermissions only titanic came to mind yeah i was like, gonna say maybe heat i don't know gone with the wind right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't fucking know it's been a minute but yeah, we totally do not do it intentionally and usually when that shit happens we really thought we did it in half the time and we've really just been in some yeah. sort of like queer vortex. Like we pressed like stop shit. and we were like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, we're like quick maths. That, that don't work. Be. That don't work. That's what? But I also want to give fair warning and pre-apologies to anyone who has joined us for this podcast, beautiful journey of Gentleman Jack to prepare yourselves for the season finale. We're not there yet. Terrence has no idea what's in store for him, but I do. And I'm just going to say now, I'm going to say now that I have more things to say as shit goes on. And I have a lot, a lot to say about the finale. I have so many fucking feelings where that is concerned. For any of you listeners who already got there, I'm sure you know. I, I'm sure you know that there's a lot to be said. There's a lot of fucking feelings. There's a lot of acknowledgments that need to be made. We need to make sure that we big ups and give the right care of attention to every single iconic moment that is in that fucking finale. So this is me warning you guys ahead of time that we're going to put in a two-parter because it's definitely going to have to be that. I don't know how many hours it will take us to fucking get through the finale, but it will be something. So just FYIzzy. Can you think of any comparable season finales or series finales that just uh, sent you into the throes of bliss? You mean, what, <laughs> so when I, I actually get what I want? No, most of the finales, they take something very dear from me. That's this is delicious. That's the trend. The trend is I, they say I may get a thing and then all the things I want is just dashed. It's all dashed and it's all gone. It's <laughs> so wait, so are you telling me that you don't have not one finale? Like a finale where like... In I, the history of If I'm television. thinking of like romances and I mean, it doesn't have to be romance. I right, mean, so okay. So if it's not romance, then maybe something where there's like a... It should be a drama. So it can't be a comedy. Like, you can't be like, when the Wayans brothers ended right, and they were... Right. <laughs> it's got to be something else. There's a lot of shows out there. Uh, television with a finale that I was just like, oh, yes. Uh, fantastic run. Great time. 
didn't waste my time at all. I can't. Uh, only the upsets. I can only the upsets are flooding my head. <laughs> okay, uh, give me some upsets then. How I met your mother. See, I never watched that show. Thank I'm goodness. one of the humans <laughs> that just I was like, I'm working too much. There's too many shows on my docket. I'm not getting into this one. Mm. So I I know that's the thing I've heard over and over again that they just <laughs> fucking bungled it at the end. I'm sorry Woo! to everyone out there who's a fucking fan of How I Met Your Mother. So that's a big one. I've heard Breaking Bad. I've not ingested Breaking Bad. Yeah, I just wasn't interested in crystal meth drama at the time. So I don't know, but I've heard things about the finale. Is You said a bunch were flooding to your mind. Give me like two okay. more. Okay. Uh, one I didn't love. Well, I don't like the, well, we're not at the finale finale of that. So maybe I should just kind of hold that. Arrow was bugging me. I'm not going to talk about where Arrow is. If people are kind of, but the new series, this, the new season that's coming up is its last, and they're doing some multi super crossover. Yeah, that's they're, when they're crossing over with um, Black Lightning. Yeah, and, uh, that's yo, what about I, you know what? This is the wrong podcast. I was about to be like Supergirl in her pants, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, the drama what? with her and Lena. But I was about to say, wait, you, so I'm not getting Lena, and I'm not. I'm, that's, look, so it's not going to be a thing. Look, but. it's always going to be a thing, Lena and Supergirl. But will it be an official thing? Fuck them. It doesn't matter. As long as we have those crack videos and as long as those right. actors keep doing what they need to do as they play the scene, we're good. We'll get the content. Act actors and crack <laughs> crackers. Yes. Keep, okay. Keep on cracking. Act, actors and crack crackers. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have some inordinate amount of shows that I feel like ended a season or the series perfectly. So I'm not going to be like, oh, Terrence, I got so much more than you. But there are... I can't even say a few. Honestly, there's really only one in particular that comes to mind. And I probably have mentioned it on all the podcasts I'm on or just I say it to people all the time because I really do mean it fundamentally. And that's Six Feet Under. Alan Ball's HBO. Also another HBO show, just like what, about oh, yeah. 20 years removed at this point, 18 years removed. And um, it was a very well written show. And just by the nature of the show being about death, where every episode opened up and someone died and the arc for the family and the characters in the show, it starts with the death of the patriarch of the dad and just like what people are going through. And that was one of the shows, like maybe like The Wire or Oz, where you're like, the content is really emotionally heavy every episode. And I feel like I'm maybe discovering something about myself or going through something or seeing something in new light. And it's hard to imagine how a show that's just all the time that poignant can still be poignant at its very end and still find a way that feels natural to end the show. And it was that. I can't watch. I sometimes go to YouTube and just like look up the final 10 minutes and just have a little cry oh, and think wow. about my life and like the future and things like that because it's affected me that much. Every time I hear Sia. Oh, someone was doing it in karaoke the other day too. And I was like, you know, six feet under. And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm God, old. People learn yourself I'm a fogey. I'll get it. Okay, yes, you have to be a bit of a fogey or an older millennial to remember Six Feet Under, but it's also if you subscribe to HBO or you have HBO now and you're watching Gentleman Jack on that platform, just if you if you should have some extra time, maybe wander over to Six Feet Under, check out the pilot, see what happens. There's a queer character on there, David, and um, he's a whole full 3D person that is explored in the show. Yes, so it's Breathe Me by Sia. And so I cannot hear that song and not get choked up to be like, okay, here is the circle of life. Here is why things are important. Fucking think, call your mom, tell your lover, shit like right. that. And so just um, completely and totally, what's the word I want to say? Impactful to me. And 
it's been a while since I experienced a series or season finale that I could say was to that level of impacting me emotionally and, and mentally. And I'm thinking about it. I'm marinating on it weeks and weeks after the fact. And that's that's the Gentleman Jack finale. So without giving anything away at this point, because how could I? But yes, I have those feelings. And, you know, I'm such a fucking critic when it comes to like certain shows right. that for me to say that shit with all of my goddamn standards <laughs> i say that not very lightly but with absolute certainty then, that it's it holds up as one of the greatest season finales for a show period well then I i'm can saying appreciate period. that and, I, and then it, with that kind of pressure i can see why they want to take some time before they do another season if i mean i'm so mad about that two-year bullshit i still feel like the brits gotta gotta get on that american <laughs> schedule but <laughs> i'm just greedy yeah it doesn't really happen with shows more frequently with films because it's a little bit easier for a film to leave you on that thing. And it's way easier for a show to just fuck up. It's like, you're good, you're doing real good. And now we're in season four and you just shit the bed. Yeah, you, you forgot while we're all here. Uh, I should also tell you lovely people that somehow, some way, I've delved even further into endless or dumb. I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand what the fuck is going on with me. I mean, I do, but it's just like, wow. So... Basically, in this past week, I got curious about diary entries. And although if I'm honest, I'll just I'll be straight up that my that what started the pilgrimage into her actual diaries, meaning non-translated form in the fucking archive was I was trying to find grubbling and I was trying to be like, well, in her penmanship, <laughs> how does she write to grubble? Right. Like, how does that look? I and need to decode. do the scientific. <laughs> right. I need to do the scientific things just in case I need to text this. No. <laughs> Right, you know, for science. Uh, for science. And so initially I thought like, okay, here's the code. I can spot this with my eye and scan the pages. But if you guys have seen any of the scans of her pages, you know that her fucking font, how she writes is super condensed. It's not always the neatest thing. It can be hella confusing. And so basically I spent a whole lot of time trying to scan for a word that I never found, even though I knew it was probably on that page. And so I was like, okay, the only way to do this is to actually translate word for word. Like I'm a motherfucking historian. Like I'm like, I'm in school. And I did that. And initially it was like looking into the matrix. I'll be honest with you. Cause I was just like, yo, what the fuck? And it was very tedious. But after about 35, 40 minutes of me being at it, something magical happened. Can you guess? You were able to... I was able to start reading without looking at the key. And I tell you the squeal <sighs> that escaped me. Like, it was like, it was so satisfying to just sit, like... And Turkism. you know what it was? It was her petticoats. Like, yes. I did her petticoats without looking at the key. And I was like, bitch! You remember the double T. Anyway, I'm... It's the small victories, you guys. I just <laughs> was so fucking excited because I love puzzles anyway. It's just something I like to do. I like challenges. And that was something that happened. But also, I want to mention this because who knows if anyone else has had this idea. And if you had, reach out to me because practically I can't really do this because like of my life and like jobs and things I must do for bills. But while I was doing this and even though I was having tons of fun and I really feel like on the one hand, I kind of want to start a club. And it's going to be like the the Queer Ladies Club. And we'll just like, maybe we'll meet once once a month or actually, Aww. no, that's too little. Every weekend and just like, I don't know, smoke some ganj and fucking decode Ann Lister's diaries as it relates to Ann Walker and just be like, what's over here? I don't know. But the other thing I thought of was coding an algorithm because 
as you know, I'm technically minded. And so as I was doing it, I was like, what's the faster way I could get this done? And so naturally I was like, build a code that can recognize her penmanship and then fucking scan the pages and have the code source it. But as I was thinking of the steps I would need to do to make that happen, I was like, God damn, that, that's a full-time job. I'm not getting my PhD on Enlista, although I wouldn't mind if I had the time to do it. And so part of me is like, people go have fun, like just go decode a page just to see what it's like, because I think it is very fun. But then also, I think it would be super cool if someone built code to then just crunch the whole fucking shit, all five fucking million words, just in an instant. Well, not an instant, but you you get me. Uh, like, yeah, I get it. Instant enough. And so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's working on that. I Googled it really fast. I didn't find anything. I feel like it's probably not a project someone would undertake unless they planned on writing a thesis or potentially, you know, worked for some sort of museum or whatever Halifax fucking archive Right. Place. Oh my God, if you guys hear this and you want me to build it, like hit me up. But all the gays with free time, like we can form the Enlister Decode Collective. <laughs> we can just work on the code in our spare time and just give it as a gift to the to the gays of the world. I don't know. No, Maybe I I'm alone. I love it. And then we'd have to find, I don't know, someone to kind of help fund it. But I love it. I love this idea. We just need a power gay to help oh, yeah. fund it. Um, if any power gays are listening to this, honestly, it would be a labor of love. It's just that, like, I also have things and responsibilities. And three old as fuck dogs. My puppies are so old. And they're high maintenance right now. All right. So let us get into some journal entries as it relates to episode two entitled, I just went there to study anatomy. Yeah. Where shall we begin? Okay, so the majority of the entries we will be referencing today are from three books primarily, and that is Gentleman Jack, The Real Anne Lister by Anne Shoma, with the foreword by Sally Wainwright, Nature's Domain, Anne Lister and the Landscape of Desire by Joe Liddington, and No Priest But Love, The Secret Diaries of Miss Anne Lister, 1824 to 1826, edited by Helena Whitbread. All right, so I feel like I want to start someplace fun before we get to the drama, and uh, that means grubbling. <laughs> as we mentioned in episode two, that grubbling is a spectrum. You gave a bit of a, your rundown of the, the kind of hump oh, yeah, that the, happens in a grubble. The, the dry, the dry hump. The dry hump, the dry rub, which no, that's not for meat, but well, mm, you know what? <laughs> hey! All right. I love a good pun. <laughs> you choking on Woo! your fucking liquor. All right. Okay. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Losing my train of thought. Okay, so yes, grubbling. Grubbling being a spectrum. And as I said to you guys in the last episode, that I fucking have been highly and thoroughly entertained reading about Miss Anne Lista and all of her drama with the petticoats and the grubbling and really the spectrum of grubbling and how that goes down. So I want to highlight a few entries that sort of go into this uh, toiling, petticoat toiling that Anne would do for the grubble and how grubbling wasn't always near queer as one might prefer. Okay, so I have to say that this entry is from No Priest But Love. <laughs> and it's from the time period as this book majorly covers uh, Anne's relationship and courtship and entanglement, messy entanglement at times with Mrs. Barlow. And I came across this entry when I was first reading. And honestly, I couldn't stop laughing because, I mean, you'll hear it, but it reminded me of shit that I fucking experienced, but like middle school, uh -huh. <laughs> like, mm. like really young career adolescence. You let me know what you feel about it. I'm just going to fucking read it, the scenario, and then we shall discuss. So she writes about Mrs. Barlow. She got in and I had my arms round her. She lying with her back to me, my right leg under and left leg over her. I got a hand towards her queer by degrees. She so turned round that my left hand got to her very comfortably 
And by degrees, I got to feel and handle her. I got, <laughs> yo, I'm sorry. Your breathing got me <laughs> fucked up. I got her gown, <laughs> I got her gown up and tried to raise her petticoats also. But finding that this would not do, parentheses, one of her hands prevented it, close parentheses, I was contented that my naked left thigh should rest upon her naked left thigh, and thus she let me grubble her over her petticoats. All the while I was pressing her between my thighs. She said just once, quote, ah, you are doing yourself harm, end quote. And I gently replied, quote, oh no, I am asleep. And Mrs. Barlow's like, <laughs> it finishes. Mrs. Barlow's like, no, you are not asleep. And Anne writes, I made no further answer, nor did she, but I went on grubbling for a moment. <laughs> Yo, bitch, bitch. She said, I'm asleep. She said, I'm asleep. <laughs> she out here grubbling at home. She's like, and girl's like, oh, you, you about to harm yourself, about to harm me, fucking Georgian slang. And she's like, bitch, I'm not even awake, bitch. I don't even, um, who, what? This is my ghost. This is my ghost grubbling. I just got to say some shit to you that I, and I actually have discussed this with a few of my queer lady friends. And more than one of us had a situation akin to this situation. Oh, oh no, with no. Another I, lady. I sat in the seat. I <laughs> you see, right? This is a queer ass seat. It's a seat to be in. It's like now, a Miss Lister. <laughs> Miss Lister. But, it's ridiculous know. that Anna's like, well, she's an older woman, just a woman. She's not a teenager when this is happening, but it's understandable given like the times that this type of seemingly adolescent, I don't say adolescent, but just young, young queer interactions would still be happening with Anne Lister, especially as she's fucking with queer women who haven't fully realized they're queer or stepped into the queerness or, of course, the infamous heteroflexible. That's just like, you keep calling me pretty. And so I'm going to allow this. <laughs> you know, like, I like I like the way you make me feel. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a thing that happened with Miss Barlow. Shall I continue with some of the <laughs> some of her petticoat comments? Now and then I held my hand still and felt her pulsation. Ow, that's <laughs> pulsation. <laughs> Let her rise towards my hand two or three times and gradually open her thighs and felt her as well and distinctly as it was possible to do over her petticoats. Wait a minute. She's out here feeling a hoe's pulsation through the petticoats. And I'm just trying to say, Miss Barlow, what was those pulsations like? Right. <laughs> so my thing she is, was excited were you for real, for real, for real, for real. It sounds like you were not asleep. But she wasn't asleep. She said, you're about she to hurt yourself. Asleep. Who about to get hurt? Because you're over here. Like that Beyonce line, don't hurt yourself. <laughs> <laughs> don't you're, hurt me, and But do, do hurt me. Oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. That sentence ended where she's like, uh, over the petticoats, and felt that she was excited. Mm -hmm. Girl, I bet. And she finishes saying, I continued for, I dare say, quarter hour more than. After being quite a while, she half sighed and said, oh, I think I could do anything for you. Um, that's so, pretty fucking that gay like after a good sort of ass fucking grubble. Yeah, yeah that, that's what happens though. I feel like this is why we got to say Ms. Barlow was certainly a queer because that type of energy that happens when you get yourself a good grubble, I feel like many of us can relate to when you're exposed to the beauty that is queerness and the queer. Um, the way that you carry on, the way that you act is not altogether rational or logical or tepid. Well, I have to say that Calm. I'm excited <laughs> because it, I don't want to put this strain on the men of high society. But something tells me that they're not the ones um, with the strap game in this era. So these women who are in these um, degrees of status, who are of this echelon, they're not having prime sex. 
So you get someone in a room like um, Miss Lister. As I said, my brandy. As I said, my brandy. <laughs> Terrence, we know from the scientific polls and the data that women in 2019, the heterosexuals and queers who are in opposite gendered relationships, they are suffering from the O's. Mm-hmm. Statistically, 65 to 70 percent of women in heterosexual relationships or pairings are not reaching their pinnacle. Ooh. And I agree for those women, but also it's kind of your fault a little it bit. Like, it is your like, fault. You can incur a cross if you must. You can incur a cross assisted by technology because it's 2019. Or you could just fucking alight and walk from your fucking man uh, yeah. to a woman. Um, woman? Woman? A lady woman? But <laughs> no, that's the gay agenda. Let me stop. I mean, you know, talk to your partner and figure out what, <laughs> what works for you. Aren't you curious <laughs> about what this, this degree of me. pulsation could be? Like what it is? What it's okay, about? How learned a gay is Ann Lister to be like, the pulsation I feel through this fucking petticoats <laughs> is letting me know she's, a lo- she's more than a little bit excited. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I know I would have hung out with Ann Lister. Like, she's a fucking, <laughs> she's a snobby bitch, but we still could have fucking hung out. Oh my gosh. This particular entry just basically ends with Miss Barlow fretting a little bit about Ann's fucking STI. <laughs> and it's like, don't be concerned. It's going to be fine. But I think we mentioned in a previous episode, I forget if it was the actual episode or the nightcap, that Mrs. Barlow does recommend her to a Parisian, a French doctor of repute to be like, Maybe he can help you handle this so we can get the grubble down risk-free. But yes. And I have one more grubble, grubble entry. (laughs) I want to highlight because the grubble entries are the best. And now I'm to this place because I went to all my Kindle versions of the books and I was like, grubble, like just grubble search. Where's the word in the book? And so there are some books that don't even have grubble. And I'm like, ah! And then there are other books that have like grubble mentioned, you know, five, six, seven times. But I'm like, surely, surely, a lesbian it's like Ann right. Lister There's has more grubble that. more times. And so I don't, you know, in one of the forewords of the books, I believe it's Helena Whitbread talks about like trying to strike a balance between what of her life was told and what is allowed or what's the word I'm looking for? Not classy, but perhaps appropriate or polite. I don't know. I think the English care overall about politeness a little bit more, but I feel like the gays, like we deserve this. We deserve every last detail of the grubble. What if Agreed. we can learn some what if we can learn some tips that were lost in the 19th century? Or what if we can just co-sign and be like, yeah, girl, that's lesbians been doing that since year one, actually. The year that Misandry began, which is also year one. Yeah. BC. Year one. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I feel like there's a lot more grumbling in that diary than I've been allowed to read about, perhaps. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just thirsty. That's also this Ann Lister effect. It's happening. So that's also true. All right. To the second grubble scene. I guess I'll just pick a part to start in. And this is, again, in the section of her time with Mrs. Barlow from No Priest But Love. And uh, more petticoats. Petticoats drama. Then immediately came Mrs. Barlow to go out again. She jumped on the window seat to see if it rained. I locked the door as usual then lifted her down and placed her on my knee. By and by, she said, quote, is the door fast? I, forgetting, got up to see, then took her again on my knee, and there she sat till four and three quarters, when Mel Desan sent to ask if I could receive. I told the maid I was sorry I could not. I had got so bad a headache. The fact was, I was heated and in a state not fit to see anyone. I had kissed and pressed Miss Barlow on my knee till I had a complete fit of passion. My knees and thighs shook, my breathing and everything told her what was the matter. She said she did me no good. I said it was a little headache and I should go to sleep. I then leaned on her bosom and pretending to be asleep. <laughs> I'm 
sorry. Every time I see that shit, kept pottering about and rubbing the surface of her queer. Then made several gentle efforts to put my hand up her petticoats, which, however, she prevented. But she so crossed her legs and leaned against me that I put my hand over and grumbled her on the outside of her petticoats, though she was evidently a little excited. And it was from this that Mil de Sand's maid roused us. Mrs. Barlow had once whispered, holding her head on my shoulder, a word or two which I think were, quote, do you love me? End quote. But I took no notice, still pretending to be asleep. She afterwards said once or twice, quote, it is good to pretend to be asleep. End quote. And then once, while I was grumbling pretty strongly, she said, you know you pinch me. After Mil de Sand's maid roused us, she drew her chair close to the bed. I sat on the bed and partly knelt on one knee so as to have her quite close, and she began to reproach herself, saying she was a poor, weak creature and what I should think of her. I protested love and respect, said it was all my fault, and I would be miserable if she was too severe to herself. Quote, can you not love me one little bit for all the great deal I love you? If you do not love me, I cannot forgive you. You are too cruel, thus to sport with the feelings of another. But if you do love me, I am happy. End quote. What do you think, said she? Oh, I replied, <laughs> that you do. I'm sorry, I just gotta stop. I gotta stop the entry because <laughs> like and... I, went, I went beyond, I went beyond the petticoat stuff, which was why I started it. But then I was like, oh, the Balo stuff. And it, I guess I should just say that I'm interested in seeing Ann Lister's life in every section that it happens because I find it also intriguing and interesting. But this section too, because it's like, you get this interesting idea. I mean, you know, Ann is, is being a player. She's on her fucking Lister. And yes. later on, we'll have an entry that basically is one of the points where she's sort of vocalizing that I'm about to be a player, I'm about to be on my lister because Mariana's broken my heart. But this is one of those situations where, bitch, you out here pretend to be asleep while you grumbling hoes. You got hoes literally saying, I love you. Do you love me? This is great. You just touched my quit and I'm a little fucked up and now I'm ready to fucking pledge my life to you. And Anne's like, oh, I, I'm actually not awake at this moment in time to address your fucking serious query. But uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that entry? She's she knows what she's doing, and I I oh she knows love it. She fucking knows. I just love that uh, she's also quite confident in understanding how someone else feels. So when someone can read you like a book and can just talk about how it's like her quote, doing. "Thus beloved by them in return, I have no choice but to be with the ladies." I'm she's just, like literally, if they didn't love me so much, maybe I could stay the fuck away. But they love me so much, I can't. Like how could I? It would be against God. And country to not give the ladies attention. And I'm with that Amherst fucking agenda, man. I agree. It's against God and country. Yeah, I don't even know if there's anything of real substance <laughs> from this entry, except to say, here's a peek into Anne's life and her toils with the petticoats. Again, maybe I'll write that that poem, Ode to the Petticoat, because um, someone needs to, someone has to. And I guess while we're in this relatively saucy part of journal readings, I... I want to just take a little a little piece of a book to talk about Anne's thirstiness. And that's not to say that we don't see Anne Lister being thirsty as fuck as she's engaging with Anne Walker, because again, hungry like the wolf, like we've been talking about. But there were other times in life, too, that Anne Lister was on display and just in her diaries at the very least, and probably to some degree, actually just in the street for any knowing person who could tell. But she was fucking, there were some times where she was fucking thirst McGurst. And from like a thirst off or like a, where it's like a, a thirst, thirst Olympics. Could work. A, thirst, a thirst Olympics <laughs> between Anne and Anne. We could do that. Unfortunately, we do not have Anne Walker's diaries, which I'll keep lamenting till the end of time. But otherwise, that thirst off would be pretty fucking interesting because I just know whatever the fuck Anne Walker would have written in her goddamn diary would have been Pulitzer Prize worthy. All right. So what is this thirsty entry? 
All right. So this entry is from the book, The Secret Diaries of Miss Enlista. And it's from September. And she's in Halifax at this time. And it's in the period that she was fretting over Miss Brown. Anyone who's read the books or things, you know that she, Miss Brown, was obviously a pretty, a pretty lady. That immediate lust for Anne Lister when she saw her. And so it reads, went to Pine Nest today for nothing in the world but to see Miss Brown. I wonder what she thinks of me and what she thought of me tonight. Surely female vanity cannot seriously be offended at my so particular attention. As soon as I got home, I asked my aunt seriously about calling on the girl and declared I would joke no more about her, for that I really liked her in good earnest. My aunt looked a little surprised, but I had taken her by surprise and she behaved very well. And then we have like later on in this entry, like her lamenting her thirstiness in a certain kind of way <laughs> in front of her aunt about Miss Brown. It continues, came up, came upstairs 10 minutes afterwards, brought my aunt up with me, talked about Miss Brown, said how foolish it was, but I really liked her and expressed a serious wish to call. After half an hour's talk, my aunt consented. As soon as she was gone, thought the matter seriously over, lamented, prayed God to have mercy on me and to help me Lamented, prayed God to have lamented, prayed God to have mercy on me and to help me and resolved never more and resolved never more to mention Miss Brown and to avoid her entirely. For the last time, I will allow myself to try and meet her tomorrow. <laughs> she's like, yo, I must never I must resolve myself not to think about this pretty hell because she's got my mentals fucked up. But she's like, but tomorrow, I'll um, see tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow will be the last time I will see her. Tomorrow's going to be the last time I catch again. You know what? That's and it. I'm, I so can I gay. can totally just this can be just out of my I mind forever. It. Starting tomorrow. <laughs> oh, the thirst to the queer thirst knows no bounds. It's like the equation of infinity never ending. Unquenchable thirst. Like I could quit at any time starting tomorrow. <laughs> so that was a nice little fun look at Thirsty Anne. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I said I was past the grubble, but <laughs> but I just found another entry and I just feel like it's so melodramatically gay that it deserves to be highlighted. Special mention. Oh yeah. We're back here to Mrs. Fucking Barlow. And Anne, once again. Onanism. When was the last time you heard that word? Onanism? Basically means masturbation for men's. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, it's not something that people, I mean, maybe people say it. I just don't, I don't live or work or socialize with people who say onanism versus wank or. Right. But that's all I got. Wank. Yeah. I don't have the vocabulary. That's it. You're just a wanker. Yeah. yeah so I was, I said that because onanism is used and I suppose it's a prettier way of saying masturbation because masturbation just sounds vulgar to use Anne's words. But yeah. So this is an entry point where they are discussing things and a little bit of sex topics, but then also get to the grubbles. And prior to the grubbles, Miss Barlow came to me and stayed till 4.50, sat talking for some time. It did me harm to sit on my knee. You know, <laughs> did me harm. Oh. I Harm to the petticoats, harm to the queer. I just... That's an interesting phrase. Hmm. I'm going to start using it. You have done me harm. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm getting distracted. It was all for my sake she refused. At last, she consented. Ooh. Sapphic love was again mentioned. I spoke rather more plainly. It was something Mrs. Middleton had said that had made her comprehend what I had said about artifice, and it's in brackets, the use of a phallus. I mentioned the girl at a school in Dublin that had been obliged to have surgical aid to extract the thing. Said boys learnt much vice too at school, the practice of onanism, etc. So here they are discussing like the use of toys and ah. Anne's horror story of like the reverse Richard Gere where she had to go oh, to get no. it surgically removed. And I'm just sort of like... 
I have questions. Um, how small was it to need surgical removing? And what, how was she, was this a woman pairing? Like how intense was the, was the session for the, for the phallus to be lost within, <laughs> within the woman for surgical, surgical? Like, I just feel like we need to identify what surgical means. Surgical means cutting you open. So unless they mean surgically, no, there is no other way to mean surgical. Surgical unless means they cutting. Unless they need it, like, what am I thinking of? But maybe you just need those surgical tools. Like, what am I thinking what? of? Like, what is that? None of that I sounds know, good. That I all know, sounds super I scary. Know. Like, I mean, it, like a forcep. Yes, <laughs> actually, I was thinking of forceps I'm and tongs. That, I, that it occurred to me. I was me. thinking I'm of forceps and tongs. Uh, yes. Fuck so it's my like, imagination. It's like my... <laughs> just relax and breathe. And, and jeez, and, yeah. Oh, okay. So continuing about onanism and things and this poor girl in Dublin. She continues, she said the warm look she had said so struck her the first time she had called on me was directed to her bosom. From little to more, I became rather excited, felt her breasts and queer a little. Tried to put my hand up her petticoat, but she prevented. (laughs) Uh Oh gosh. Touched her flesh just above the knee twice. I kissed her warmly and held her strongly. She said, what a state I was putting myself into. She got up to go away and went to the door. I followed. Finding she lingered a moment, pressed her closely and again tried to put my hand up her petticoats. Finding that she would not let me do this, but still that she was a little excited. I became regularly so myself. I felt her grow warm and she let me grubble and press her tightly with my left hand whilst I held her against the door with the other, all the while putting my tongue into her mouth and kissing her so passionately as to excite her not a little, I am sure. Ooh. Ooh. Um, that's... Yeah. I think we can identify this as wall sex, wall grubbling. <laughs> or certainly oh, the sure certainly is. the preamble to wall sex, which... Yes. Can we all agree that that's some of the hottest sex you could possibly uh, have? Yes. Like, it's spontaneous. It's wall sex. I mean, that's that's all we need to say to describe it. Oh, I didn't even finish the last part of it, where it says, When it was over, she put her handkerchief to her eyes and, shedding a few tears, said, You are used to these things. I am not. <laughs> Yo, she had Mrs. Barlow. She literally sent a bitch to tears. She was like, This grubble is so damn good. I am at a loss for words. I am undone. And she's saying to Anne, like, I'm not like you. Clearly, you're used to what it's like to actually have pleasure done to your body. I'm not. Or clearly, you know what it's like to be attracted to the person you're with. I, I don't know right. what that is. I don't know what that is. That's not what happens for but me. whose fault is that? I mean, the patriarchy a little yes. bit. Fuck the patriarchy. Fuck the patriarchy. Because the, the patriarchy's in this weird... I See, I keep getting phrases, but I'm like, the patriarchy's in an odd freak. Because the patriarchy is the patriarchy, and it leads to all these horrible things that oppress women in this time. But you know what it also leads to? Excessive grumbling! Because men were so fucking clued out about women and, and the, the possibility of lesbianism being a thing. They were like, women, women, go spend time together, sleep together, grubble. It's fine. It's just gals being pals. <laughs> <laughs> it's gals being pals so well. on the one hand the patriarchy is oppressing people but on the other hand the patriarchy is enabling super gays like Ann Lister to grubble as they may you know grubble as you can grubble as frequently as you can when Be you can because prepared. life is short grubble get a kiss get a O, go to Italy all the stuff as Study often as anatomy. you can exactly study the anatomy become learned <laughs> in the ways of the anatomy and i'll just read this last bit here because i just like the way it's phrased on leaving me her face looked hot her hair out of curl and herself languid exactly as if after a connection had taken place 
I do tell you that I believe Anne was thrilled with that vision because why would she write it down if she was not thrilled with Miss Barlow looking like a connection? Meaning the the sex, the full on going to Italy had taken place. She was like, look, I got a bitch fucked up, got her hair, got her curls all messed up. Like we connected. How was she going to explain this to her lady's maid? It doesn't matter. That's it. That's all I have to say. Thoughts? <laughs> Queries? <laughs> oh, sounds like a good time was had by all. By all. <laughs> by all. That's fun. That's fun bits of Anne. Anne on her lister and on her seductive fucking... Um, I was about to say Mrs. Trail? D, a girl or whatever this it is. It is. And I also like reading these entries too because, I mean, not because they're just holistically entertaining to know that there was a, a gay living this wonderfully and ridiculously in the 19th century, but also to contrast with how she courts Anne Walker and how she handles her figuratively and literally and how that goes and, and how we can contrast it to her previous experiences with the women that we get to see her spend time with in the books. We'll say Eliza, Isabella, Mariana, Mrs. Barlow and Vera Hobart, I would say are the mainstays. Like there's other bitches, but in terms of where we get some of the deepest looks into these these interpersonal and sexual relationships, it's a it's an interesting contrast that because she really does think quite carefully about how she approaches courtship with all the women she endeavors to do it with the only common mainstay is like make a bitch feel good <laughs> compliment her tell her she looks amazing and make her feel good but everything else she can kind of tweak which i suppose is what people do when they date anyways right i mean i don't know do you have a way that you that you act or carry on like do you have a a thing you know that you modify depending on who you're trying to entice or is it just like one size fits all I feel like I'm just always me. So if I'm the thing you want, then I'm me. So bitch, yay, that's the way it's supposed luck. to be. I mean, <laughs> that's the right answer. But that's that's the right in your answer. Favor. But if you're looking for, oh, I don't know, someone to jump through hoops. I mean, uh, are you looking to train someone? Are you grooming? Like what? Like what are you looking oh, for? Oh, I suppose right. You know? That is what. Yeah. Hmm. I agree. I don't think that I I put on artifice. I'm usually myself, which was what makes me so oblivious to certain things where I just don't see it coming because I'm just in my own head. But no, I'm pretty straightforward. That's why everyone knows I'm a misandrist. Like people who meet me like for a day, they're like, Candace, the misandrist, because I'm just me 100% upfront, 24-7, all the fucking time. An interesting bit mentioned in No Priest But Love is a short section of the book they entitle Lesbian Sex is, quote, a scandal invented by the men. <laughs> huh. Don't they wish? And what's interesting here is they mention Marie Antoinette. Are you familiar with Marie Antoinette at all and the fuck shit that surrounded her relatively short but um, I controversial have, life? I, I did have the pleasure slash displeasure of... Uh, Vividly remembering Kristen Dunst and her portrayal. Oh, and yeah. Sofia Coppola with yes. the modern music. <laughs> yes. Hey, all right. You know, there's that's a way to go for Marie Antoinette. For everyone who doesn't know, but y'all probably do, that Marie Antoinette was a infamous French monarch who met her end <laughs> thanks to a, a guillotine, a head chopping in like 1793, if I'm not mistaken. And I mention her because Anne Lister and Mrs. Barlow talk about her because part of the thing that happened around her reputation around the time that things were popping off when she was married to Louis XIV was that there were tons of rumors swirling about her being just like a gay. Like she was a lesbian. She's out here fucking women and how deplorable <laughs> she's having sex with women. <laughs> I feel like there was things would be passed around 
and circulated, you know, talking shit about her, including like, you know, pornographic cartoons or pamphlets, engravings, songs, pretty much any way that folks could talk shit back in those times, they would talk shit. And the names of the two most common pamphlets were the Royal Dildo and the Royal Orgy. Like, yeah, you can fact check this shit. And in them, you see Marie Antoinette being pictured using dildos on herself and other women, companions and... (laughs) Uh. <laughs> eating women out yeah performing 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 the oral sex getting near Whoa. really near queer really really near queer and generally having what looked to me as a good time but when men aren't observing is the only time that it can be a good time and so in the book no priest but love in this heading lesbian sex is a scandal invented by the men they kind of talk over this thing that would have been you know a pop culture sort of talking point in the times. And it reads, went to Miss Barlow and sat with her an hour. Somehow she began talking of that one of the things of which Marie Antoinette was accused of was being too fond of women. I, with perfect mastery of countenance said, I had never heard of it before and could not understand or believe it. Did not see how such a thing could be. What good could it do? But owned I had heard of the thing. <laughs> Mrs. Barlow asked if Govani had told me. I said no, and that nobody could be more correct than Madame Govani. I said I would not believe such a thing existed. She's playing possum. She doesn't. Oh, lesbianism. <laughs> They're talking about Marie Antoinette. I had no idea. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how that happens. Actually, I did hear about it. I mean, I heard a little bit, but I still don't fully understand. Like, what is going on? How is it possible? Lesbianism? What? And further on in this entry, it goes on to mention an opinion that Anne had that she expresses more than once, which is her idea that for people that she is potentially trying to seduce or partner up with, like Mariana's sister, when they're like, hey, do you think this is fucked up? Do you think this is wrong? Do you think this is a sin against God? And Anne is always like, uh, no. If there is a sin against God, it's the dudes, because the dudes are the only ones specified in the Bible. And I would just like to say, as a side, side, side (laughs) historical note, if you read the Hebrew transcriptions and get a motherfucking scholar who speaks the language to help you out with the actual translation there's there's some things to be said about the scripture allegedly condemning homosexuality and i'll just say that that is not the altogether academic thought for other historians but that aside that was Anne's reasoning she was like that's men that's them men having sex is totally against god but us bitches us bitches that don't even do it i mean i don't even know what it is for sure i don't know what it is but if i did know what it is and i did truly engage in it it would be totally fine and non-sinful Obviously. Yeah. And yeah, there's also a bit of a a mention, well, mini mention of Aunt Anne Lister and maybe a bit of background because we've talked a bit about her and there's not much to be known or said about Aunt Anne because obviously anything that we would know about her would just be written in historical record and of course her niece. But in the prologue for No Priest But Love, they mention Anne's family that her uncle, James Lister, was a quiet recluse, needing only his books and his farming activities, where his sister Anne was an uneducated woman of simple, homely tastes who spent her life organizing the household around her brother's needs and battling with a crippling form of rheumatism, which had afflicted her in her middle age. They did not attend the social gatherings in the town of Halifax, and James firmly discouraged any attempts on his sister's part to entertain visitors at Shipton Hall. So a bit of insight into what we were discussing in episode one about who's allowed to come to Shipton. How long has this been the case? Is it just an Anne thing? And Anne has certainly had her own preferences about don't be coming over to Shipton. I'm not sure if I want you to see this stuff. But as we see here, it's kind of genetic. It's kind of familial. Plenty of listers, or at least in this recent history, James Lister was like, don't come over. And here we have two other listers unmarried. And we know that Marion went her whole life, as far as I'm aware, unmarried, uh-huh. childless. And so... And essentially is the only, like, where is the delicious irony? 
that Anne Lister is the only member of her fucking family to get a wife, to wife it up. And I just, I love it. I just, it's just, <laughs> it's a bit of poetry that speaks to me. And then it finishes that part saying, into this quiet, orderly, reclusive life burst the exuberant figure of their niece, Anne Lister. I just, you know, adding color to what was otherwise a monochrome life. No Priest But Love also gets into a bit of the history on at least, you know, what is known a bit about the rest of Anne's family, including, you know, her brothers and sisters. And as we know, her original family contained four boys and two girls. And only, of course, the girls, Anne and Marion, Marion being born in 1797 and six years younger than Anne, survived. Three of the boys died during childhood and the fourth, Samuel, which is the brother mentioned to Henry yeah. in that story, drowned in a boating accident in 1813 while serving in the army. And he had been, of course, the heir presumptive to the Shibden Estates in Halifax. Anne was 22 when he died, and it was decided by the elder Listers that she should inherit Shibden on her uncle James's death, whilst her sister Marion should inherit the Scheffler property at Market Wheaton. Accordingly, in May 1815, Anne, at the age of 24, arrived in Halifax to live permanently at Shibden Hall in order to acquaint herself with the running of the estate and prepare herself for the role of eventual mistress there. It also continues that Anne's lifestyle was unusual for a woman of that time. Disdainful of anything resembling feminine pursuits, Anne's interest and hobbies were such as to cause a great deal of comment from people around her. Strenuous walking. I mean, every time I see strenuous <laughs> walking. Lord. Wow. Horse riding, shooting, and flute playing were hardly compatible with the air of delicacy required. Flute playing? Bitch, what? I thought flute was, Wait, I thought the I'm flute sorry. was delicate as fuck. <laughs> Evidently not. Okay. In addition to flute playing, were hardly compatible with the air of delicacy required of the fashionable lady of leisure in the early years of the 19th century. In the year 1824, when this book begins, she was 33. Her character was already formed and her determination to live her life according to the dictates of that character never wavered. At an early age, she was a source of trouble to her mother. Well, that I can relate to. In later years, she describes herself when a child thus, quote, I was a great pickle. Scaped my maid and got away among the works people. When my mother thought I was safe, I was running out in an evening, saw curious scenes, bad women, etc. Uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. I don't know about you, but bad women to me means prostitutes. Well, you know. Ladies of the night. So she was sex learning, workers. She was learning the hard lessons. She was learning the good lessons. I mean, I'm just mad that she thought they was bad women. They could have they could have helped you. And there's another entry. I don't even know if I'll pull it out today, but there's another entry that gives people the impression, myself included, that Anne got a sex worker from her father. And it's in a story uh. that she mentions this to Miss Barlow. Like, again, No Priest But Love got a whole lot of juice in terms of, like, what was going on in Anne Lister's life. And just the phrasing that she uses and Barlow's response, you get the idea that a bad woman, like, again, what is a bad woman besides a woman who won't marry and have kids? A sex worker, so... Well, now or would, she can read. I want the series to <laughs> at least hint at the fact that she's somewhat of a, a talented musician. Because I'm desperate for that. Because I'm now thinking about now that I see that she understands placements so well that she, you know, me understanding that she knows how to do finger I, work and she being able to translate work. that finger by playing a different <laughs> instrument that is warm-blooded and beating like a she heart. She got those flute skills <laughs> yes. and she's applying them elsewhere. You know what? I've never actually deigned to think of that, but does musicianship help? In the, I it should. Feel... I play a couple instruments. Yeah. That's okay. Let me put that on my resume. 
(laughs) (laughs) My list of resume. I need to stop. Okay, so, hmm, what were we saying? Oh, Anne, young Anne. And uh, you were saying you'd like to see her be musical. That's, I mean, I can spoil you now and say that's not really something that the show has time for in season one, but it's on my long list of things that could happen in season two. And since they're going to take 85 million years to give a season two, there's enough time for us to campaign directly to the people involved to be like, hey, if we could just, if you could just... For like a little, yeah, a little recorder. Just a little something. And in keeping with a little bit of, a little bit more background about childish, childish, about young adolescent Anne and her family, it goes into a little bit about how her mother, in despair, sent her to a border at the age of seven to a dame school run by these women. And Anne remembers, recalls, quote, being whipped every day. And so Oof. we got some fucking horrible childhood abuse, which sounds about right for the times because children didn't have no goddamn agency. And I could see me looking to rebel once I got out of said school. So I needed to reveal things and sit in particular ways that I was doing the entirely opposite of those things. If I need to be in the skirt or things of that nature. No, I'm wearing pants now. That's my thing. I I'm doing what I I want. Right. Right. I mean, that's the way my personality works, which is just, and people would figure that out about me as I got older. Is that like, if you, if you try to tell Candace, especially baby Candace, some shit and you get funny style, like the stubbornness that will come out, like it is, it is ancestral. It yes. is genetic. It is to the yes. very core of my atoms and my molecules that I just am like, no, I'm hunkering down. Like it's <laughs> yo now, now, now you fucked up because now I'm irrationally predisposed to not do anything that you've told me to do. So the stubbornness runs long time. My mom figured that out. Thankfully, she never sent me to a goddamn boarding school. She never would. She just um, got tired of going to those meetings with my teachers where they were like, yeah, Candace is good in school, but she got (laughs) opinions and she doesn't keep them to herself. It also mentions that the punishment, however, seemed to have been administered more in sorrow than in anger, in particular for a Mrs. Taylor who attended the school when Anne was there. She remembers Anne being, quote, a singular child and singularly dressed, but genteel looking, very quick and independent and quite above telling an untruth. Whistled very well. A great favorite with Mrs. Treadle. Oh, you know what just occurred to me? Mrs. Treadle, can you guess? Think of another woman teacher with major influence with the queers. Do you really need the time? Come on. A teacher? Think of a woman teacher. It's a school. It's a, it's a school. On. It's a movie from our childhood. Let's see. Teacher. Female. Come on. I know it's on the tip of your tongue. This movie features a young girl as the heroine. I'm narrowing it down for you as we see speak. now. This movie features this, one of the only young girls started? who had agency ever in a movie. Right. So, and it ends in a way that is like atypical. See, I was going to say Matilda. It's Matilda. Okay. It's All right. right. That is the right answer. <laughs> yes. And you know who I'm talking about? Do you remember the teacher's name? Uh, no, but I know her face. Miss Honey. She still looks, <laughs> I feel like she still looks like that. Yo, Miss Honey was a honey, is what I'm saying. She was. I don't know any queer child who was a gal who watched Matilda and wasn't like, um, Miss Honey is a snack. Didn't have the word snack in the repertoire, but come on. She took down those glasses on the bridge of her nose and you're like, oh my God, how come none of my teachers look like this? In school. <laughs> and fucking for the first four years, I went to Catholic private school. And so I fucking had nuns and shit. And let me tell you, Terrence, ain't none of them nuns look like Miss Honey. Not a single one. Not a single fucking one. Now that I'm thinking about this finishing school, I'm thinking of this anime. I'm going to see if I can find images. Uh, it was called Revolutionary Girl Utena. And so how this one girl 
There was a story that she got rescued by a prince. And she took those feelings of that day when she got rescued. Oh, my God. And she decided to say, you know what? She's going to become her own prince. Versus how people would think, oh, I'm going to go and marry a prince. She said, no, I'm going to I'm gonna be my own prince. I'm going to become like a prince. And then she went to go rescue her princess. And that's the whole plot of the series. What the fuck is this? A uh, revolutionary girl, Utena. Like, teachers are, like, cussing her out because is she's not anime? wearing... Yeah. Okay. Teachers are cussing her out because they're like, please, just wear the traditional girl's uniform. I'm in school uniform. She's wearing the boy's uniform. Her and actually major plot point there's one other girl she's like the leader like the fencing squad right they're the only two characters that are the girls that are wearing like the men's uniform but they are both <laughs> boss ass bitches that's no, I, fucking amazing they explore so much that was such a thing in catholic school like how how much can you get away with altering your uniform before you fucking get written up or sent to the office and gosh motherfucking gender roles <laughs> can we stop and you know what it is i'm not even averse to wearing like dresses or gowns because there's a time and a place and i feel like when people see me and they're like whoa can't because we never see it because i'm so not a dress person but part of it is because i was forced to adhere to a code in right. private school in church or something like that where they're like wear this wear this wear this and then my mom like no no this is what you need to do to go to your interviews and fucking club leadership positions that by the time i got out of high school and i was in college and i was doing my own goddamn thing i don't i don't think i actually purchased something that could qualify as even being akin to a dress or skirt for like five or seven so years. that's fan art that's her oh princess in the middle and then she's in the pink and then the other girl is this a gay love triangle well this, i don't want to spoil things about this thing, but it definitely explores all the avenues of what do you like want it. to be versus what do people expect you to be? And oh, yo, yeah. few better things than a woman in a suit. I'm just saying, <laughs> few better things. Than oh, a woman she was in a suit. also like the only girl on the boys' basketball team. Okay. And she was, she, she, See, now you're giving right. me flashbacks to playing baseball when I was the only girl. And then when I got to fucking high school, actually, technically it was eighth grade when they started to like stop me, when they were like, oh, uh, softball. And I was like, hold on, 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 hold on. All these years, I've been playing the way the boys play. I can't pitch well underhanded. I can only pitch the way I've been pitching. They're like, well, that's for the boys. And I was like, well, here's this kick <laughs> <laughs> to your balls and goodbye. But yes. Okay. I So I need to add that on my list of things to watch. I love how every time we do an episode, we're always like, add this queer content to your schedule. I mean, hey, if you list. don't already know about a hashtag, get familiar. I mean, is, there's I nothing always wrong need more with queer content expanding in my life. the library. There's nothing. Not if it's queer. Hell no. We can <laughs> always expand even further. So, yeah, that was unfortunate that Anne had hands put on her, but not surprising because people didn't know what the fuck to do with her. How do you solve a problem like Adlista? Give her a girl. I'm just saying. Or, you know, just learn. Or just leave her alone. <laughs> and that was one of the things she did. A great, I don't want to say respite, but uh, Haven, maybe, was reading. She was a young reader, an avid reader, and... Without a doubt, it accelerated her IQ and intelligence by reading a lot and early and never stopping, as we could so far tell, up until when she's building her showmere. That's so, that bitch is still reading a dozen books a day if she can. I was also going to give you some pretty specific details about the whole George and Elward connection that we were talking about when it comes to Mariana, Isabella, and Anne. And so basically you have Anne and Isabella meeting at around 1810 when Anne was 19 and Isabella was 25. And so as far as the book tells us, they embarked on a, on a flirty and somewhat long sexual liaison, sexual affair. And at some point in that time, Isabella introduces her to Mariana Belcombe. And as it's described immediately, she was like, 
Okay. Turning left. Jeez. <laughs> Turning new girl here. <laughs> oh, dear. But the book also makes sure to point out that, you know, Mariana was from a socially insignificant York doctor. Oh, oh. Because oh. that's that's the constant contrast man Lister that even though the Listers don't have that much bread in comparison, what they have is a name. What they have is like cloud significance, right? Yeah. Social significance, the literal opposite. It's basically so if she meets Isabella, 1810, by the time 1814 comes around, they are lovers. So within that four year period. Isabella is cast off and Mariana is in the paint as a lover. So by 1814, with Anne 23 and Mariana 24, they had become lovers. The book says, despite their passionate attachment to each other, the hard reality of economic circumstances intruded upon their idol. Anne was not the independent woman of means that she would be later in life when she inherited Shipden. And even had the lovers braved public opinion and attempted to live together, they had absolutely no means of support. Dr. Belcombe also was not rich, as we said, and his five unmarried daughters <laughs> in his hands, he was fucked up. So when a wealthy Cheshire landowner approached him with an offer of marriage from Mariana, the Belcombe family was delighted and they accepted his offer with a clarity. And of course, the suitor Charles Lawton was a widower, 20 years older than Mariana and the owner of Lawton Hall. It says that Mariana was dazzled by the prospect of rising from her humble status of daughter to an impecunious York doctor, to that of a wealthy mistress of Lawton Hall. The marriage took place in 1816, and Anne was, of course, literally heartbroken. There's an entry from speaking around that time that reads, the time the manner of her marriage, oh, how it broke the magic of my faith forever. How, spite of love, it burst the spell that bound my very reason. And of course, it mentions that even though the sense of betrayal never left Anne, and despite her emotional trauma, she was, of course, unable to give Mariana up for several years, up until ish, basically, Anne Walker. Ish. Yeah. And I know I've mentioned Scarborough and Black Walter's Edge as like two points. And I've hinted at the fact that Mariana was ashamed and things of that nature. I've not really gone into the entry points because there's another episode coming up in the future that it is more it's relevant gonna, for okay. me to, to so go into that. But I'm like always off. teetering. I'm always teetering just because I have my Mariana shade. And um, I'm like, I get why she's around, but I'm not, a, I'm not really rooting for her, but she is... No, there's the no need to root for Mariana. There's no yeah. need. Yeah, just to sum all that up. So that happens. They fall in love, in lust, infatuation. And then, you know, after the, the split and Mariana is married, I... Well, I think I've mentioned two things that one that she goes very heavily into her studies and just learning and things. And that's a great way to just be distracted by information and not like your fucking broken heart, but also the courting, the seduction of Mariana's sister on the honeymoon. <laughs> well, well. Because I think it's ridiculous that they send gals who are pals on honeymoons <laughs> together because that, that doesn't seem, that seems like it's engendering insanity. Like you just want to do, go to the bad place. She's lucky she was, she was British because you, you put a Caribbean hoe in there and oh, I'm on the, the honeymoon, am I? While you guys are connecting in the next room. I don't fucking think so to get an air. I'm not about that life. I'm going to get to an entry because you need to know what she was on about with Anne Belcombe, which is also an Anne because there's another Anne. But I'll just read this little excerpt here about Charles and the lovers being discovered, which happened not too long after the marriage happened and they were communicating via, via letters. Unfortunately, one of Anne's letters in which she had referred to their hope of Charles' early death was found. <laughs> you should have written it in code, love. You should have written it in code. She was like, slip eventually. Um, yeah, it was found by him. He wrote a furious letter to Anne, forbidding her to visit Lawton Hall, became extremely jealous of the friendship between his wife and Anne, and intercepted all the mail, making it extremely difficult for the two women to meet. 
So Anne's response to the situation was to use an esoteric code, the code we've come to know and love. So the lovers have been discovered and it's over. And then I just to just so you just just so I can put this all within a time period context. Because the STI is not too long after this. Like you, like I just huh. feel like if a bitch, right, right, right. You dealing with a sudden marriage. You dealing with a man in between you and your girl and all this stuff. And then you get STIs from this man who's sleeping with other women. The fuck? So he's over here hating, doing, uh, goodbye. Not yep. that she deserves equal agency because hello, the time period that we're in. So we're not going to expect happiness from women, really. But not really. It's not allowed. I just, ugh. Yeah, really, fuck out of here. This paragraph says, There was an added complication to Anne's sexual life in Mariana. In July 1821, Anne began to detect certain symptoms which led her to believe that she was suffering from some venereal disorder. It seems that Mariana had contracted a complaint from her loose-living husband mm. and had infected Anne with it. And in turn had passed it on to Isabella Northcliffe, with whom she had sporadic and un... I'm mad they say this. Sporadic and unenthusiastic sexual relations. Unenthusiastic? <laughs> if you're a woman who likes women, that's the base level you're of enthusiasm right there. a lot right now, yeah. As far as we Honestly, already covered what sexual unfulfillment looks like. I need more entries. It I need more entries with Northcliffe. It's head sex. <laughs> it's head sex and this time period. That's unfulfilling sex. That's what that is. I agree with you. That is just so palpable and clear that unenthusiastic sex. It's no wonder Isabella was a drinker. How you gonna let a girl know that you're, that her sex is is Ooh. subpar? That's that's mean. <laughs> like you could probably keep that to yourself. Or is that just me? Is that just me? I would not say that and be like, oh well, Ooh. that was. I've had better. Yo, that's like liar, liar. Yes. When he fucking when the spell goes through and that's oh, the first wow. shit he says to the girl and she's like, was it good for you? And he's like, I've had better. And then for the rest of the morning he's like, I've had better. What the fuck? That's not what you say to someone you just slept with. But all right. Yeah. Let me not mention Scarborough. Let me skip past all my Scarborough notes and I will just concentrate on the emerging of the player, the player Miss Lister, courtesy of Mary, a.k.a. Mariana, breaking a bitch's heart. You have many instances in this earlier time where she, in the same entry that she is saying something pleasant or complimentary about Mariana, she'll, in the same entry, be like, honestly, I don't know what's up with this bitch. It's like, she doesn't have any courage. She doesn't have any passion. I don't even know why I'm fucking with her. God. And that's such, that's such relationship I mean, that shit. reads. No, it, it does read. It reads. It, it sure. reads. One of the entries says, Mary, you have passion like the rest, but your caution cheats the world out of its scandal and your courage is weak rather than your principle strong she said you're not revolutionary nope and she's like it was a coward love that dare not brave the storm bitch that's, Ooh. Ooh. Mm, that's a wow but also i mean four years of great grubbles and then two hours ago like i'd be upset i'd be in my feels too so this whole section basically talks about the player emerging the emotional shock suffered by Anne from Mariana's increasingly worldly attitude to their idealistic love did irreparable damage to the relationship. Anne felt it was time to come to terms with the fact that Mariana was another man's wife, that Charles seemed unlikely to suffer premature death, that life held other promises, other happiness. Her ambitious nature prompted her to search for a wealthy, more socially elevated woman than either Isabella Norcliffe or Mariana, perhaps even a titled woman. Um, again, Veer, wish we never went to Veer, wish we never went to Veer, but okay. Disinterested love was no longer on the agenda. 
on, as idealism left by the back door, cynicism entered by the front. In terms of finding a life partner, Anne became what could be termed a careerist. (laughs) (laughs) A A careerist. Anne herself was to become a woman of property when her uncle died. She now wished her future companion to bring wealth and what she termed eclat to the partnership. Mariana, if she left her husband or became a childless widow, would bring neither. Isabella's deterioration into drink and snuff taking, oh, certainly wouldn't ensure eclat. So it was time for Anne to move away from old associations and broaden her experience of the world. She decided to put into operation her long-cherished plans to travel and was determined to begin by going to Paris for a lengthy visit. She would become proficient in the language, absorb the culture, and acquire the polish of a cosmopolitan woman. These things could only be assets in her new phase of life when at the age of 33, Anna was no longer the lonely, yearning lover waiting in the fastness of her Penine hillside home for her loved one to be released from the bondage of marriage. Now she was about to step out into the wider world of travel and sophistication to try her luck with other women and different social milieu. It is from the revealing pages of her journal that we are allowed a fascinating insight into the successes and failures of Anne's new direction in life. So yeah, yeah that was, that's Mary's impact, Mariana's fucking impact. Here we go. Motherfucker. But I'm not mad at it. Would we have as many delicious statements about the fucking petticoats <laughs> if it wasn't for Mariana? Although I also would appreciate if Anne just lived a happy life with a girl and less drama if she could manage it. <laughs> Sorry. No. But right. I <laughs> yeah. love it. All right. So I'm always finding another another global entry. All right. So let's read this before we fucking move on. This is about Miss Barlow evidently leading Anne on in No Priest But Love. While with Milda Sand, she, Miss Barlow, let me have my hand up her petticoats almost to her knee. At last, she whispered, do not yet. I'm sorry. I'm getting fear. I'm getting fear flashbacks. I mean, oh, against <laughs> the nape of the neck where it's like. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, don't. yeah. But Mrs. Barlow had kind of different energy because she afterwards let me do it nearly as high. Ooh, Ooh. above the knee to the oh. knee again. Man, this 19th century ship. She had before taken away her legs once or twice, but always put them back again. Mm-hmm. Joking about whether my character was respectable. She hoped it was, and I joked as if she thought it was a good deal in her power. She has said once or twice, if she was not so calm, what would become of me? Girls, I... <laughs> Petticoat drama is honestly, I, you know what? If you guys are on the fence about reading No Priest But Love, please just do it. Please just do it for all the lesbian trauma. And then with me, let's start and sign a petition for this version of Ann Lister's life to just be made eventually later after we're done with the Ann Walker part and we're happy and contented with all that shit. I'm just saying other creators, Sally, yourself, if you're not feeling busy, we could just go back in. We could just go back in and also see these other things. I wouldn't mind. It's okay. I'm just letting you know that I'm fully and totally into the entire anthology of Ann Lister's life. Yeah, so pasty grubbos. And I substituted more grubbles for Miss Bar. Carlos jealousy. We'll just say she was jealous <laughs> as fuck of Mariana because she doesn't know about Mariana, like I said before. And then one day she does know. And then basically Anne's like, so what you think about that? And she's like, I don't like it. Man. I don't I don't like this hoe. And I think if we ever met, I wouldn't like this hoe. That's what See you that call. she said? It's on site. Uh, <laughs> as it should be on site for Mariana. All right, so let's get to some entries relevant to episode two. I mean, I guess it's all relevant, but I'm about to jump to the paper knife because as you know, I mentioned or we talked about how it was definitely sheer gay stress that resulted in the destruction of that paper knife. And so we are going to look at the entry where she mentions this. This is from Nature's Domain, Anne Lister and the Landscape of Desire. Friday, August 17th. Called and passed on Miss Walker of Lydgate. I love how she writes in French and English. I'm just going to translate. Called and passed on Miss Walker of Lydgate and sat with her tete-a-tete from 10 to 1. 
talked of household economy. And then in code, she writes, got on very well. She consulted me about tenant rights. I'm just going to skip over that. But here's where it's relevant to the paper knife. And playing with it, foolishly, broke a pretty ivory book knife Miss Catherine Rawson had given her. Very sorry. Mrs. W behaved very well about it. I said my great consolation was that it would be a good excuse for my giving her one someday from Paris, which I hope she would value as much as the one destroyed. Yes, exclamation. She should value it more. In code, thought I, she little dreams of what is in my mind to make up to her. She has money and this might make up for rank. We get on very well so far. And the thought, as I returned, amused and interested me. And she gave with me to take home the last Saturday's Penny magazine. And uh, that makes me think of the magazines we saw and yeah, Walker so stuffing in the shit. <laughs> Which I got to find the entry later where she's like, I read that magazine and it was bullshit. Oh, of course. Because <laughs> she does. She's like, there was some fucking foolish shit. I read this magazine and I don't know what Miss Walker's up to, but the magazine is not for me. It's not for intellectuals. It's not for landed ladies. So that was the paper knife. So as you see what I said, that there's nothing, there's no sort of fanfare. There's nothing to indicate that she was scheming. Right. With paper it wasn't burka with intent. It was just, yeah crack one of our favorite things about episode two was sweaty dirty and lista hanging out with the boys the yes. working men of her estate while she did shit and the diaries and books written about miss lister totally confirmed that this was what she was on about and gentleman jack the real Anne lister which is the tie-in for the television show they write the months of Anne's life following her return from hastings were all about reinvention the renovation of shibden hall represented much more than a practical desire to smarten up an old building it was a symbol of Anne's personal healing her immersion in the land was cathartic and it excited her because to Anne, change meant progress the estate was particularly important to Anne at this moment in her life because it was a realm over which she had dominion. The deterioration of her relationship with Veer had been a painful reminder that she could not always be in control of her romantic life. Shibden, on the other hand, was her domain. The gradual transformation of the landscape around her was a daily reminder to Anne that she was creating a legacy, writing her own narrative. So that's about what the, the, it's the weed pulling, it's the, the show mirror raising, it's the Definitely. It was therapeutic. It was it was therapeutic what she was doing. She needed it and she needed to feel like she was having a, a transformation of life, not just in her emotional and mental area, but in the very tangible physical areas of her state and, and things and things. And they also mention at this time, of course, because where are we ever anywhere for like five minutes without fucking seeing Mariana's name? And they mention that because Mariana be writing letters all the time. I just wish the bitch would yeah. stop with the fucking letters, but she doesn't. And they have just a quick note of her talking about... I think this is Mariana writing to to Enlister saying all would be well if Mr. L would be a little more consistent, a little more sociable, a little more forbearing, a little more pleased to see others happy and a little better tempered. You know what would be actually better? Do you know <laughs> what would be is if you stopped writing your fucking ex slash current about your fucking husband. That would be nice. If you stopped complaining to the person whose heart you broke about your shitty fucking right. Like I made a decision. I'm not happy about it. And of course the book is like, Anne suspected this was never going to happen. Over the years, Charles Lawton had proven himself a gambler and philanderer and had fathered a child with a servant. Ooh. The marriage seemed so hopeless that Mariana's complaints simply annoyed Anne. I mean, uh, hello. That's... That is the, that is the energy she yeah. needs to have completely. The complaints annoyed her because bitch, you ain't have to be there. You didn't have to be in that situation. You chose it. Many people would argue you didn't have any choices, but I would argue that there's always a choice. You don't have to like them but there's always a fucking choice 
And they have it at the end here that Anne wrote on the 20th of August, 1832. I trust I have done with her. I rarely think of her without irritation. Girl, me fucking too. And so now we're getting to some drama. Oh, not drama. We're getting some of the entries relevant to her working with the men. And she's talking about the men that work for her. And she's like, Pickles and his men, William Greenwood and Robert Pickles, the sick boy there, found them cutting through the old pit hill bottom. With that in the cot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Calf Croft. (laughs) But she finishes. She's like, found them cutting through the old pit hill bottom of Calf Croft all wrong and made them do it again. (laughs) Oh, Lord. She's that kind of boss. And then she's like, loitered about while the men dined at 12 a quarter. All at their work again under the hour. So basically she was working these dudes hard and watching and being like, do it over. Do it better. That's not right. That's not what it says in my book. That's not the right measurement. And the book adds, her assessment of the workmen's competence was even bleeding the following day oh, Qu- no. <laughs> found quote found I could not safely leave them they would <laughs> I'm sorry I just be laughing at her fucking ridiculousness like she out here she is not a blue collar worker up in Halifax but she's out here instructing these men and she's like found I could not safely leave them they would have cut through the roots that's it she's like <laughs> and they would have cut through the roots they would have destroyed everything but on the plus side she had finally decided on the location of her chaumière which would be near the Lily Bank or rather at the entrance of Lower Brook Ing Wood. She envisaged that nine small oaks would be needed to build the moss hut, which would be completed with a thatched roof and dressed prettily with three or four little hollies opposite. She hoped that it would be finished by the end of September and its secluded location and cozy interior were designed with intent. Oh, we know. We know what intent. <laughs> the Chamiel was an intimate site that was to become crucial in Anne's seduction of Anne Walker. Well, yes. Facts. It also mentions some stuff about Anne being constipated because evidently constipation and just things of that nature was an ongoing battle for her. And I'm just like, the poor girl needed probiotics. I don't know what she was eating up there in Halifax, but if it had anything to do with accordingly and Hemingway were making it on that table with the tools, it's no wonder. It's no wonder. That too. The fucking flora, the bacteria of her stomach wasn't good enough. She needed more stuff. She needed better stuff. And of course we had um, Mr. Hinscliffe. He was the one that got himself fucked up. Last episode, episode two, trying to make offers that really he had no business making. He should have just listened to what was coming out of her mouth and followed along. Mr. Hinscliffe. And so we do have him mentioned in Gentleman Jack, the real Anne Lister, and some of the business about the coals. The book reads, Anne's month ended in a typically busy fashion. On the 30th of August, a local coal merchant, James Hinscliffe, called at Shibden to offer her 150 pounds per acre for her coal-rich land. He was in direct competition with the Rawsons. Though Christopher and Jeremiah had maintained a silence since Jeremiah's meeting with Anne, she remained cool and noncommittal with Hinscliffe from the diaries. I was not anxious about selling. The coals would pay for keeping. I might one of these days get them myself. After a great deal of talk irrelevant of the business in hand, parentheses, these people always have their talk on politics, <laughs> it ended with H seemed inclined to give me my price. And the book continues, if Hinscliffe guessed that Anne was in negotiation with the Rawsons, she neither confirmed or denied it. She maintained enigmatically that she was engaged in several conversations over her viable commodity, but had committed herself to nobody. Anne may have been dismissive of Hinscliffe on this occasion, but as a pawn in her negotiation with the Rawsons, he was to become pivotal in her quest to establish herself as a leading coal player in Halifax over the coming months and years. Boop! Says a little bit of historical background of Mr. Hinscliffe. We see a great deal of that taking place in episode episode two and i can't wait to see how this all shakes in episode three i cannot wait yes and before this bit of the chapter ends it it ends with a bit of the contradiction i've mentioned before about Anne and her politics and just her opinions of things like women where she's like no women shouldn't vote unless of course they're landed ladies (laughs) (laughs) and there's basically a quote that says all that and it's talking about how she was having a conversation with a friend harriet and about politics and women in politics and 
absurd. Women in politics. And Anne writes, on the 6th of June, 1830, she thought ladies had never any business with politics. I said entirely, but there were exceptions. For example, ladies, unmarried, who had landed property and had influence arising out of that property and might perhaps use it moderately. (laughs) Well, she advocated for the gays. She's advocating for her fucking self. She's like, these are rich lesbian problems. I feel like you're right that women shouldn't be involved in politics. They shouldn't vote. But if they're rich, smart lesbians with land, clearly like me, then they should be allowed to vote. <laughs> it's just like that line where she's like, well, now that she knows that she can fall in love with a woman, well, me. me. <laughs> I just love that confidence. It's ridiculous, but it's uh, it's uh, endearing. Endearing confidence. All right. So, oh, you know what? I'll cover the entry for Mrs. Priestley, and then we'll close out with entries relevant to our beloved Chomiel <laughs> and the first first date, okay. first I mean, showing it's, it's of the girls. It's not built yet. I mean, it, it's it's a well, dream. Well, this is the preparation, yeah. So it's not exactly about oh, here's a Shomir existing because okay. again, there are there are entries oh, <laughs> for okay. episode three. It's okay. just about what I was saying before that she actually spent a great deal of time and a great put a great deal of thought and effort and energy into the Shomir and crafting it completely specifically to her wants and desires. And that in the show, as I I'm pretty sure I mentioned this, yeah, first episode. So Anne doesn't actually go to see Veer and do those things while Anne Walker is away in the Lake District. In real time, she's just back at, at Shibden in Halifax, working hard, double time, triple time, building this Shomir or instructing the men ridiculously and meticulously on how to build it. She's incurring crosses. She incurs her first cross for Miss Walker while she's away at the Lake District. So I feel like it's worth mentioning, considering what we saw, the thirst, the thirst, the hungry like the wolf, that it matches up that a bitch would start incurring crosses just right after, right, right, right right after that same night. I had a measuring contest with uh, the Eldrosson. And then I made my way back and said, oh, we need to... Post haste. Head <laughs> post to the haste. house immediately. Let's motherfucking, pack you. Motherfucking post haste. So before we get into what really matters, which is the meat of our two favorite ladies of the show, I'll just gloss over, not gloss over, I'll just cover really quickly the entry in Nature's Domain and Lister in the Landscape of Desire. That kind of covers the Miss Priestley bit that we saw in the episode. The book is like Miss Priestley remained a good source of advice, both about the choice of suitable creepers and creepers meaning like workers that she could hire to do her shit and on finding a Scottish servant. About Anne Walker, it was in Mrs. Priestley that Anne had to confide. Although she was not the orphaned heiress's mother, and so not like Mrs. Northcliffe and Mrs. Belcombe. Mrs. Priestley was still probably the most appropriate woman to act in loco parentis. However, Anne could always cleverly manipulate situations, and here she artlessly conveyed to her old confidant the impression that she still had not identified a, quote, fixed companion. And she writes in her diaries, At Lydgate in 35 minutes at 9.20, Miss Walker at home, sat with her near a couple of hours, then proposed going to Cliff Hill. We sat 35 minutes with Miss Walker, her aunt, and then after having sauntered and looked about, both before and after our call, I left Mrs. W. Jr. at her own gate, about one, and then went to Lightcliff. Said how well Mrs. W. and I got on together, had been at Cliff Hill together, and asked her to inquire for a Highland servant for me, then got on to grave subjects. I was more unsettled than ever since. All my thoughts of a fixed companion frustrated must have someone difficult to choose again in code. She mentioned Mrs. Lawton. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was obnoxious and loud. It probably peaked. Yeah, that's Mariana. And it continues in code with Anne, I guess, responding. Oh, no, I liked her very much, but that was a different thing. 
end quote. Hmm. Was it? It's an ended thing. It's a done and dead thing. She's married a man. And she continues and made the same answer about Miss Isabella Northcliffe. And so I like how Mrs. Priestley knows her exes. She's like, what about Mrs. Lawton? What about Miss Isabella? And she continues, all this was to throw Mrs. P off the thought of M, whom I know she must have fancied I had fixed on. Ah. Uh, so she's basically like, oh no, it's not, it wasn't just about M. It was uh, there was Northcliffe, there was um, Barlow, there was there was women that wasn't M that I've not been completely and thoroughly obsessed with this entire time. And the diary entry continues. I got on as usual, friendly as ever. Though at first it struck me what she thought of my seeing so much of Miss Walker. Perhaps the Priestleys will think of it by and by. Miss W and I do certainly get on marvelously. She seems quite confidential and glad to see me. Told me of her plans of altering the Cliff Hill grounds, etc. Miss Walker and I talked of her going with Miss Catherine Rawson to Wastwater Lake on Wednesday. Said she would like to see the Giant's Causeway and Lake of Killerney. So should I. Said I would take her next month and she would have gone but for having promised to go to Wastwater. Exclamation point. I hope she would not be long away to be back before the end of next month. She would like well enough to see Switzerland. Shall I get her there? In code. Mentioned my being near Wastwater and begged her to think of me there. Yes, she responded. And that's just because it's in quotes. She should not forget me. And that's also underlined. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Emphasis. Really, I almost think she has no dislike to me. At any rate, who knows how it may end. I shall be wary this time. Again, that is Mariana's influence of stuff and her constant wariness where Ann Walker's concerned despite the obvious thirst we are observing in the show. So yeah, there's that. And you know how I feel at Miss Priestley somewhere on the grubble spectrum. I don't know. But I feel like her whole life she was like, if I could just get a grubble from Miss Ann List, I don't know how to approach it. I don't know how to go about it, but I'll just settle for these fucking flirts for now. And mild forms of jealousy. I mean, haterade. I'd love for my handmaids to be curious as to why my petticoats are so damp. Again, we know what that head <laughs> sex was looking like in the 19th century, so how could you not? Alright, so to close out everything here, we are going to talk about the quote-unquote first showing, a.k.a. the day date, as I like to refer to it, between Anne and Anne. And so the books and the diaries talk about sort of essentially the very first time that Anne Lister and Anne Walker make a showing of themselves together in public, which is something that Anne Lister took very seriously. And I guess in general, it's like in Carol, like I'm dropping my gloves. Like this shit is really intense. It's really serious. Like I take it seriously what's going on. And so let's get into a little bit of this early courtship. If you are checking out or reading or doing the audible version of Gentleman Jack, the real Anne Lister TV show tie-in book, this begins at around chapter four, not around chapter four, exactly at chapter four. And if you are reading nature's domain which also covers this stuff it is at the chomier chapter i'm forgetting at the top of my head which it is just just search chomier and that's where it's at so gentleman jack the real and lister reads in the first days of september 1832 ann walker was preparing for a holiday in the lake district the trip which she would make with her relative Catherine rawson would take her away from halifax for over three weeks by now ann lister felt confident enough to ask miss walker if she would be thinking of her while she was away though ann's response to this rather romantic question was encouraging quote yes she would not forget ann lister remained circumspect the scrape with veer and the historic disappointment of mariana tempered her excitement about this new relationship quote who knows how it may end she wrote and that's what we just read in the previous entry and continues i shall be wary this time the two women arranged to spend an afternoon together in halifax before miss walker's departure their first public outing would be meticulously planned theirs was a courtship destined to take place within the bounds of propriety nothing could have appeared more respectable than the quote sundry shopping and social calls of two landed women and spent the evening beforehand planning her outfit she personalized a new police 
and encode, wrote, suing on a watch pocket, and putting strings to petticoat and getting all ready to put on tomorrow. It was a measure of the seriousness with which she viewed this first show of togetherness in Halifax society. Anne wanted to make a good impression, not only to Anne Walker, but on the wider family who she hoped would one day become her in-laws. When Anne Walker arrived at Shibden Hall, so, okay, so, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's in episode three. Mm, I'll just roll that back. Forget it. Um, <laughs> hey, ho, hey, ho. See, I have to cover this now because the, the time lap thing is weird because I could technically save parts of this for episode three, but there's so much other things that happen in episode three. There's too many entries to bother with that. So I have to cover it now. So we're just going to do the day date. So I'll just say this now that in episode three, without much spoilers, Anne Lister asked for Anne Walker to make an official call on her aunt. Oh. Yes. Official. Officially official. Like, oh, would you come see my aunt? And you know what that mean back in the day. Yes. And so I, I'm saying that because in the diaries in this book at this point, Anne Walker is making a formal call on her aunt. And so because things are kind of like, you know, a little bit, oh, just moved around a little bit, squished here and there, it's appropriate to say it now for where they are emotionally and mentally in like the courtship, but maybe not just yet for the show, even though there's like a weird crossover. Anyway, so yes, it's like Ann Walker arrived at Shibden Hall on the morning of September 3rd. She was early and made conversation with Aunt Anne until Anne Lister was ready to leave. At 11.50 a.m., the two women set off for Halifax and Miss Walker's carriage, <laughs> which had been selected as a smarter vehicle. So Anne Lister had a Toyota and Ann Walker had a Bugatti. Right. So they and said... Anne Lister was like, we're taking a Bugatti, <laughs> yeah. babe. Like, what you mean? We're not taking my, my Honda. And so they left in the smarter vehicle and an ambitious itinerary of social calls had been planned. And so I'm not going to go into all those goddamn social calls because it doesn't really fucking matter. But among those things they did included stopping at Throps, which was a garden merchant, for shrubs and flowers. So you know Anne was thinking about that goddamn chaumiere and spicing up Shibden while she was hanging out with Anne Walker. Um, it mentions that in the name of civility, Anne encouraged Miss Walker to extend their visit to Miss Edwards in spite of a, quote, huffy letter Anne had recently received from her relative. And Anne Lister noted with pleasure in her diary Miss Walker's willingness to follow her advice. She wrote, quote, she seems inclined to consult me and tell me all. Later down, it also continues that Anne Lister was confident she would not be forgotten during their separation. By effectively acting as Anne's chaperone, little Anne, she had taken a valuable opportunity to step visibly into Miss Walker's life and society. Two days after Anne Walker left for the Lake District, Anne incurred a cross. So that's what I mean. Two days after Anne Walker's out, the bitch, the bitch at home, she thanking, she's marinating on wifely things, uh, lesbian things, and she incurs a cross. She rubs one out. Villanelle style. <laughs> yeah. Yay! And it marked the first time she had used the phrase about her. Always recorded in crypt hand at the top of the day's diary entry, this was Anne's preferred way to describe an orgasm she had achieved by masturbation. It was frequently used in conjunction with the name of her current or would-be lover and sometimes followed with the specification that she had been thinking of that woman, quote, merely as a mistress. Without an accessible language of female sexual pleasure to draw on, Anne had devised an idiosyncratic lexicon by which to record her sexual activity. Quote, grubbling meant using her hands to bring another woman to orgasm. A kiss was another word for orgasm. And going to Italy referred to making love or having full sex. Which, full sex is, I'm not sure what that... 
Is that a head statement? I'm just trying I to figure it out. Want to say yes that because that's all a, sex a is full statement. sex. But let's just let's gloss over it. So we'll move on. Okay. Anne was a confident and experienced lover of women. The sexual preference she records in her diary is characterized by a desire to give her partners pleasure before taking her own. She displayed a deep interest in their arousal and preferred to touch than to be touched. Though her partners would also initiate lovemaking, Anne felt comfortable when taking the dominant role during sex. And that's interesting because I mean. I know that there's a, a wide variety of sexual experience for queer people and what they do. But just off the cuff, I just I kind of want to put it out there for the heads and just people who might be confused about this is that all gays and queer women should display a deep interest in the arousal and <laughs> touching up their partner. I just uh, don't know how else it's supposed to work. Naturally. Am I am I bugging or am I not bugging? Like, I just, is, is, is it new news? Do people not know this? Presuming that it's a crapshoot, what women and women trying to I please other think, women? I don't think that hets and a lot of people understand that women can get off on pleasuring another woman without touching themselves. Like that's a real thing. Like it's a reality. This is not that kind of podcast, guys. But I just want to put out a PSA to say that that's real life. It's real. It's, it's the Berenstein Bears of truth. That doesn't make sense. But you know what? Let's rock with it. Am I telling any lies here? Uh, no, I feel like we are we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> we're on the same page. Let me take a sip of my brandy. Okay, so yeah. All right. It continues that Anne enjoyed the company of women. Indeed, her social life was overwhelmingly female. Hey, hello, the society of women. That's what we need. And in some ways, the forced secrecy of her lesbianism worked to her advantage. And without it, she would not, as she recognized, have been so free to pursue platonic or intimate friendships with women. Well, you know, bless the patriarch for that little piece of thing, like we said earlier, for that little piece of, little piece of something. At least. Now, this was something that also intrigued me. And again, I'm, you know, when the show's done, should you decide to read the books, other listeners who want to talk with me about this, I'm sort of curious about this kind of statement. I'm wondering if it's more of a het thing or just, I don't know. Let me read it. I was going to read just the one sentence, but I'll just read the whole thing. However, in a society in which she was not able to openly express her desires, finding a sexual partner was challenging and could be dangerous. Advances had to be made carefully and incrementally. With so much that couldn't be said, it was difficult to gauge how each woman would respond to her courtship. Her diaries reveal only two women as having a similar sexual identity to her own. These two, quote, regular oddities, which from the detailed description contained in Anne's journals we might read today as butch lesbians, were Isabella Norcliffe and Miss Pickford. Like Anne, they had expressed a disinclination ever to marry a member of the opposite sex. It continues that Anne could safely assume that same-sex love would be an alien concept to Miss Walker. She had no reason to speculate on her previous sexual experiences. And so I had double highlighted that because I just want to talk about that for a second because I'm like, I'm wondering what you think about that. Uh, safely assume that same-sex love would be an alien concept because I'm not of the thought that sexual repression means that you're not thinking of something. Now, whether or not it's possible for you or whether you should have it or you deserve it or is quote unquote right or whatever is something else entirely. But am I really supposed to believe that that Ann Walker had no ideas of lesbian love, even though she may not, she would not have had the language to express it? I think that there's something deeply innate about welcomed and unwelcomed sexual advances of sorts so for her to be surrounded with the means that she's had uh and then dealing with people like you know doctors trying to think of ways to swindle her out of her people money. literally talking her into what she's supposed to be thinking and feeling yes so i could see myself in that situation feeling like i didn't want any type of advances sexual or otherwise with persons who defile my agency right so and you know the breath of fresh air that is Ann Lister I could see me wanting to 
you know, let go of all the things I was holding so tightly to, including some of my my passions. So it doesn't mean that she's. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. I don't. I was curious because I don't have that that experience myself, similar to sort of like that book I mentioned to you, written by Helena Whitbread, where she interviews that other diarist, Natasha Holm, where in her experience of life, she was dealing with more repressed stuff and, you know, akin to the religious shit that we sort of see in the Ann Lister story, but just the opposite effect of like, I'm not ever confused about whether or not this is natural and intended for me. That So I can't I can't come from that perspective because I'm, I'm on the Ann Lister perspective of since... I can remember having conscious thought and understanding what a crush was. Crushes were there for girls. And so I just, um, I'm curious. I'm just, you know, I guess we could put a call out to the listeners as to what they think about that because it's just, it's an interesting thing. And I, there is some, some speculation and things to be said in this book by Helena Whitbread with Natasha Holm about the expression of, of queerness, because even if you're not fully expressing like some sort of sexual fucking behavior, which really who can do that until you know what is to be done. So even though a queer person can be intensely repressed and just not fully understand the depths of what's happening with their emotions and their feelings and their hormones and all that fucking stuff, how common is it that people who eventually discover their queerness are like, whoa, that situation I was in was totally queer, queer overtones. That relationship was a little bit too close. My care for this person of the same gender whatever the fuck was way more intense than what logically made sense for what was happening and so i'm just wondering in this case that you know we're talking about ann walker plausibly being a queer that would then mean that there had to be some degree of closeness that she experienced that was atypical at some point in her life because like this this natasha home she was like i had an intense unbelievable crush on this fucking teacher like a miss honey where you're like you don't necessarily understand fully what this is i'm in love i'm crushing and this is the this is gay this is gay coming out of me but you're aware that it's happening you're aware that the friendship is super 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 fucking intense and so i'm just like can we really expect that to be true even if you're a queer woman of the 19th century because the subconscious is real thing and and i just again i'm not i don't have enough of that personal experience i just know what my friends have told me things i've read that i empathize with but that's why i'm like trying to pick your brain on it because i'm just curious i mean some friendships do enter a brand new tier where it's like, it's nothing like anything you've ever experienced. And you know for sure that it is its own thing, even if you can't identify it in that moment as queer. But they're racing passions where right. it's like, there's this undeniable attachment, this closeness. And uh, it even gets to some degrees dramatic, depending on... Oh, it gets dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, I'm wondering, and this is totally side note. I'm not trying to interrupt you. I just want to put it out there for the listeners. How many of you gays write letters? I'm just I'm just trying to figure out how many of you gays out there are using your words to win the heart of of the object of your desire. Because I'm just gonna say I'm one of those gays, and I just wanted to mention that because Ann Lister very clearly is one of those gays. But please continue. Please continue. Uh, yeah. So um, again, this is all before you have the language of saying that something is queer because you don't. Maybe that awakening has not yet happened within yourself, but you just know that this is like, maybe, you know, all of these are just regular friends and maybe this is what a best friend feels like. Again, you have no idea, but you just Actually, know. Actually, that is true. You're like, is this what a best friend feels like? But, um, you I mean, what? you learn later. Best friends, best friends don't get into your bunk. Talk about, are you asleep? Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm regressing back to my own memories, but... <laughs> 
your memories and Lister's memories. And Lister's memories. So many memories. Yeah. It was just something I want to talk about. Would totally love to discuss these concepts with other queer folks out there who just have opinions about what could be the full color within Ann Walker's experience because I just, and just from what I've heard from other queer people who are late bloomers and late discoverers of the queer, it varies, but some deep-seated subconscious thing was there. It was totally fucking there. I don't, I don't fucking know. Oh, the end of this part concludes by saying, but it is likely that Anne Walker, though she had lived a sheltered existence at Lydgate, would have heard rumors of Anne Lister's liking for women. The cloak of incomprehension that existed around female same-sex desire did not render Anne Lister's, quote, oddity completely invisible. If Anne Walker had heard rumors, it did not impede her desire to pursue the friendship. She arranged to take breakfast with Anne as soon as she returned from Westwater on the 25th of September. But Anne Lister was aware of the speculation that could follow her close friendship with women and was eager to protect Ann Walker's reputation as well as her own. Over the coming months, as their liaison deepened, she would try hard to deflect the attention of others. This would be an onerous task given the keen spread of local gossip and with Ann Walker's many relatives keeping a close eye on her every move and fortune. So hella foreshadowing right there. I mean, it just seems curious and it could be just leading into what I can expect for episode three. So it's just me playing with concepts right now as of now okay okay i can dig that and uh <laughs> and we can close out on the shamiel with the things of the shamiel and this fucking motherfucking date at the chapter of the shamiel when it begins in nature's domain it talks about how Anne had passed four unhappy months since veer hobart's proposal and for three of those months that she had been at shibden um this was her first long stay for many years and it also mentions motherfucking briggs <laughs> Motherfucking Briggs going down as we remember his disgusting legs. It talks about, well, I guess this this entry is really touching on the Dr. Kenny thing where they were bitching. Not bitching. They were gossiping, finding mutual humor and comfort and talking shit about Dr. Kenny in episode two. Yeah. And so it says, the two women found intimacy and in gossiping about common enemies. Marion. <laughs> And a certain Dr. Kenny. About an hour with pickles in the walk. Then at Lightcliff at nine and three quarters. Sat a couple of hours with Mrs. Priestley. Glad to see me. Thought it above a month since I had been there. Then called on Miss Walker of Lydgate and sat one three quarters hour with her. Found her very civil and agreeable. She said how she disliked Dr. Kenny as a medical man. He asked her queer questions and made odd remarks. She would never have him again. We got on very well. <laughs> Thought I, as I have several times done before of late. Shall I try to make up with her? I just love that she's talking herself into this shit. She's like, don't be afraid. Put your jaunty back into the water and <laughs> get yourself another girl. Like, might you make up to Miss Walker? Yes, you might. Oh, that's episode three. I love how I like literally wrote episode three. I'm like, don't oh, yeah. read it, don't bitch. Don't do it. Don't do uh, it. Don't spoil me. So after that paper knife entry, the book makes a notation that instead of planning an immediate repeat visit to Lydgate, nothing happened right after. Instead, that she remained immersed in her practical landscaping activity. And it was almost as if she was coolly allowing this unexpected reacquaintance to mulch down while she mused over its full romantic and economic potential. And how exactly, of course, to make up to shy little, thirsty little Miss Ann Walker. <laughs> oh, and here's that little piece I said about the little, the little magazine where she was talking shit. In 25 minutes, read over Miss Walker's Penny magazine of last Saturday. Well enough, but not worth much time. Of <laughs> well Ooh. enough, but not worth much time in reading. Uh, Out at yeah. one and three quarters, having been some time with my aunt, found pickles and two men and one boy at the embankment and digging for weaving up to the Tilly Home Bridge. And this is something that's consistent in this time is that she's like, basically, Miss Walker, Miss Walker, my show me out. 
the workers. Miss Walker, my chamier, the workers. My aunt, Miss Walker, the chamier. Like it's just, it's that's what it is. Oh, incurring across, incurred across. Incurring. That too. <laughs> that too. Can't forget that. It was also something to note is that amongst her renovations that she was doing for the house was one that was thoughtful for her aunt because her aunt was suffering and had shitty legs and the rheumatism that yeah. she wanted to renovate part of Shibden Hall to make it easier for her aunt to get around. So, you know, she's being a good a good niece Aww. at the time that she's being a, a good future wife and she's just trying to make everything fancy. Here's a quick note of her writing about talking to her dad, <laughs> Captain Lister, <laughs> about the Captain shit. Lister. Just picture his energy from episode two. Breakfast at 8.10 with my father in half hour told him of tidying up the stick heap, building a low wall against the house, against the cattle, and planting the ladder with ivy. He did not appear to like it much, but said nothing absolutely against it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the exact energy from the show. He didn't look like he liked it, but he also didn't say no shit. He's not going to stop me because he knows, can he stop me? Should he stop me? Shall he? This is mine. Shipton is mine. I inherited it. It was left <laughs> to me. So no. Oh, this entry kind of just highlights a bit of pouty Anne a little bit because... Went down to my aunt at 11.30, poorly again. Amused her by talking of altering the house. Better idea than what seemed to me the best on Thursday to turn the upper kitchen into cooking kitchen. My aunt's present bedroom into back kitchen. Hemingway's room into butler's pantry. Hall into dining room. And then she's like, at 12, read the morning service sermon by Mr. Knight in exactly 50 minutes as I generally do. Then looking about, true. The house is not worth much altering. Should do little to improve me or pull it down at once. I'm just sorry. Before she said, I had a thought. Actually, that looks like, like actually, why don't we just pull it down? Why don't we just demolish this fucking shit? Why don't we just destroy Shipton Hall? Which is perfectly dramatic considering what we see. And it saddens me every day. And it's like, yo, yo, and and the book is like, this idea was a little drastic. Luckily, the house was not pulled down. That's because Anne Lister is fucking drastic. She's fucking dramatic. Ugh. So September marked the start of a possible new life for Ann Lister. Would this new relationship really meet her desires for both love and for fortune? Her diary entries record both her anxiety and her worldly wise cynicism. And just for what I am talking about. Well, this is a little bit of that polite society nonsense where she's like, Sunday the 2nd, mending my stockings. Wrote to Isabella, quote, thanks for the congratulations on my friend's marriage. Never match seemed made under better auspices. Everybody pleased. <laughs> Girl, yeah, et right. Cetera, Everybody pleased. And you ran into the Isabella, she know you folks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, had things, et cetera. So we read that part about her sewing a new watch pocket and putting strings to her petticoat to go out with Miss Walker on this date. But then it continues in code, Miss W and I got on very well. She was not for going to Pine Nest. Showed me a queer huffy letter, which was mentioned in the other book, that she had gotten from Miss Edwards and would not call before November. I advised differently and we went. But I see there will be no cordiality again between them. She seems well enough inclined to consult me and tell me all. I am to choose shrubs for her and she for me. Aww! Shrubs. I like this. Shrubs. I do. She continues. I begged her not to stay away longer than three weeks or if she did, not to go soon as Wednesday to be back the 26th and I would breakfast with her on the 27th at which she seemed pleased joked and said she had better go with me and be at Rome for Easter her refusal was weak enough to make me guess her going is possible she does not seem to dislike me at any rate well what shall we make of it if she was fond of me and manageable I think I could be comfortable enough with her and then we have some flirting via book shit because she's like, wrote the above today, which we just read. Till 8.30, Miss Walker left me today. The three eight volume history of Paris I saw and asked for when last calling on her Friday. Read a few pages, volume one, history of Paris. Asleep a little while, began harvest and cutting oats this morning. And so that was just them exchanging books 
which would become a thing. And we saw Miss Walker's yeah. library. Her library was impressive. Like <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucking Walker library definitely far exceeds whatever. Or maybe not. We haven't seen Anne's library, but it just seems like it would because Crow Nest is much bigger. Much state. bigger. Yeah. And so it mentions here that during Anne Walker's visit to the lakes, Anne Lister grew almost obsessive about the estate detail she recorded in her diary. Barring soil, replanting a holly hedge, carting stone, basically all backbreaking work still undertaken by local men and cart horses. So basically after they have their day date where they make this appearance that was obviously so important to Ann Lister and she's like prepped herself and her outfits and hemmed and soon and doing all the things and Miss Walker goes off to her fucking trip to the Lake District with Catherine. It ain't but like a day before it's like Wednesday 5th and Kurt across <laughs> thinking of Miss Walker. First time, fine morning, Fahrenheit. It's 63 degrees at 7 Not bad. I love how she's like, fine morning and Kurt across. Here's the weather. Here's the temperature. Yeah. Foggy. <laughs> and at that same time that, or it's actually the day earlier that she, before she and Kurt across, she's like, very kind letter from Lady Stewart tells me his majesty had granted to Vere and her sisters permission to take the rank of Earl's daughter. So she's going to be a lady. So my friend is now Lady Vere Cameron. Well, I am very glad of it. All parties will be pleased. <laughs> Yo, if I could just see Anne's face when she's writing this nonsense. You know, she ain't glad. She's like, oh, so a hoe a lady? She's a she's in the aristocracy. Is that what you're telling me? Okay, cool. No, I'm not jealous. I'm fine. I'm, that's cool. <laughs> I'm, congratulations, Fear. Congratulations to you and your sisters. Basically, we have her on Wednesday after Anne Walker leaves and Kerner Cross. Then on Friday, she incurs another cross. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I think she's like an every other day. Well, when you know your body. Grubbler of herself. I mean, that's, I feel, well, I was going to say it should be more frequent, but whatever. She associates shame with this. She's probably like, bitch, don't be every day. <sighs> what would Jesus think? <laughs> in that Friday that she incurs a cross, we have another note in her diary that says, a nice, civil, kind note from Miss Walker, presumably from the Lake District. She goes on Monday with Miss Catherine Rawson to sleep that night at Bowness and the next Tuesday at Keswick. And then she says, see seven lakes before getting to Westdale. And in code, it reads, I think we shall get on together. She feels satisfied at having called at Pine Nest and grateful to me for persuading her to do so. I wonder if I can at all mold her to my own way. Uh, well, girl, what was you thinking about when you was incurring <laughs> a cross but molding her to your own way? I'm saying. And this is actually my favorite part of this particular entry where it continues. My aunt left me at eight and three quarters, looked at the courier. Marion stayed talking. And then she writes, then talking to my aunt about my little care for M. That's it. That's that's all we got. <laughs> Talking to my aunt about my little care for M. I just like the way it goes in tandem. I like the way that she's experiencing Ann Walker's thirst. She's experiencing her eagerness. And at the same time, she's like, you know what I could be done with? You know what I'm kind of annoyed with at this moment? Mariana. 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 Oh, did we say out loud our ship name for them, even though we kind of hate this ship, is Ariana? Oh, not Ariana. Uh, what the no, fuck? No. Aniana. Aniana. Aniana, the most toxic gay ship of the 19th century. <laughs> oh, yeah. But basically, in this time, like literally in between the thoughts of Ann Walker and random shipped in business, it's like, Shomir, Shomir, Shomir. I'm reading books. I'm reading books. I'm reading this fucking encyclopedia on gardening. <laughs> I'm reading this other book on gardening and I'm crafting my my things for my girl. And yeah, that's basically how, how it goes off. As these continue, we get back to Miss Walker coming back from the Lake District, which kind of puts us into... That sounds like episode deep three. into episode three. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You remember the thing I told you about the time thingy thing, and it mentions Briggs dying. <laughs> Briggs uh, dies around this time. Finally. Oh, is that rude? My bad. And you know what? I'm not even going to read this letter from Mariana because I don't want to. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Oh, actually, I forget it. I was going to read this because it was relevant to Eugenie and the truth of Eugenie, because we were talking about how Eugenie is kind of, you know, a creation just for the show and that Anne was looking for a lady's maid and Mariana actually suggested Eugenie to her. And in uh, Nature's Domain, it does have a, a section where Anne talks about this, where she's like, letter from M. She enclosed a letter from Mill Pierre, Eugenie's sister, and says... Eugenie is likely enough to suit me. She will travel outside the coach, and though M told her I should not want her till January, she does not seem inclined to give up all hope of my place. Her health good, and she wishes to travel. Her, and this is in code, M's letter seems as if she thought of me affectionately. Girl, and this is, uh, I'm not even going to get to the fact that every time a bitch says something half a piece of nice, you're like, oh, but maybe she, oh, <laughs> man. She continues, does she half repent the break between us? Heaven only knows. Let heaven be the only one that knows. If I can get Miss Walker, she will be surprised. She talks of my probably settling abroad for some years. And it's like, so so we're seeing that energy there where she's like... Just like a slither of hope and it's like all abandoned. Because she can't help but hope a little for Mariana. But at the same time, she's like, but if I get Miss Walker, though, she really going to be shocked. Because if anyone has been the most sprung of the two of them, for what we can see, it's been Anne. And that's not, that's a power dynamic, basically. Again, not going to get to Scarborough, not going to get to Blackwater's Edge. I'm just going to say that if my bitch ran like a fucking mile, she was out of breath, she jumped in a fucking carriage, and she was like, I'm happy to see you. My first response wouldn't be, you're looking like a man. What are you doing? What are you doing? Being rough and sweaty. You're embarrassing me. How could you show and display your intense thirst and desire to see me after all this fucking time that we've been separated by a fucking dick? But I'm going to be upset at you and be cross at you and let the first fucking feelings that we have together after this long period of separation be angst because I'm mad that you showed out to show how eager you were to see me. That's Mariana. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not. I'm becoming less of a fan of Mariana than I've already been. I don't know if I enjoy these factuals. No. And let me just finish this entry so we can we can finish up with your shade. M would not advise me to take a foreigner if I was going to remain at home. But on my return advises me to, quote, take a steady, respectable woman who you can depend on to look after your other servants, end quote. And in code, she finishes, this seems as if she had no thought of ever being with me. Oh, my heart breaks for you, Anne Lister. Please. Yes, that is it. Anyway, uh, just go ahead with your thought. I'm just going to stop. No, I'm it's just stop this right is. I, I'm teetering on being just done with her, but I know she's going to make appearances. Hopefully not episode three. I'd rather see episode four. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. I'm agreeing. That's my, that's my rather. I mean, who knows what I'll get, but. So I think that pretty much sums us up for this motherfucking episode of entries. Hope you guys dug it. I think this might be hitting closer to two hours. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the final edit. I know I mentioned Secret Diaries Past and Present with Helena Whitbread and Natasha Holm. I did not mention that Natasha was writing in code, which was also part of the Interesting. Thing. Right. Two gays, two different times, two different centuries, two different senses of self, but code. And I think this means that us quiz should keep writing in code just in case the hets find it and try to do something with it. Not just because I've been studying Analyster's code and now I'm pretty good at it. Not just not just for that reason, Terrence, but for real practical fucking reasons. So I just wanted to mention that because that's pretty fucking important if you were interested. And it's a super fast read. You can buy it on Amazon in the Kindle store and just check it out if you are curious to see the comparisons that they draw there about Ann Lister's life and her own. But yeah, any final thoughts for us or our listeners? Good sir. Um, well, just I guess at this point I can... Uh... I could cheers to the Moss House because it sounds cheers like this is going to be fucking Hobbit a, House amazing, of Gay Love. Yeah, this sounds mm. like it's going to be an amazing mm -hmm. creation. 
Any other thoughts on what else we cover this episode, which is what the spectrum of grubbling, a little bit more of young, young, jaunty gay and Lister, uh, some more background into Mariana, just as we continue to transition into this new courtship with Ann Walker, the paper knife, gay stress moment, a um, little bit of background into the family members that we can see about the brothers, the aunt, the uncle and being sort of hermits and unmarried their whole lives. And um well, I'm sure we'll get more and getting slithers. Dirty with the men. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get more slithers of the the Lister uh, residents, uh, especially with uh, I feel with Walker coming towards the estate now, because I feel like that's going to be more of a trend with uh, Walker coming to the Lister property and not just vice versa. Mm. And I'm wondering if we're going to see any of uh, Walker's extendeds. Uh, coming to see what could be troubling there uh the tribe the tightly pursed uh <laughs> well just ask yourself this like what do we say about the haters of halifax they like to gossip so oh uh, well read into that as you will yeah. and answers will be provided to you shortly <laughs> as we continue on with the season i just want to say that uh ann lister is one of the gayest gays i've ever seen gay <laughs> in real life and i'm just so tickled on a daily basis that she fucking existed and that she was out there jaunting it up gay as fuck i mean my god that's why you have to read all the books when we're done because when you see just the amount of gay that the gay she was oozing like okay truly iconic um yeah that's all i got that's all i got i look i'm done with my apple brandy oh yeah you finished yours a while ago. Yeah. You did. You did. You should have told me you wanted to re-up. Oh, you know what we should mention? It's not coming up right away. It'd be closer to our, oh, here goes the accent, to our uh, episode three release. But we will be at FlameCon, you guys. For those of you who travel for such events, such con nerdy uh, fandom events, and we'll be in the tri-state area in New York City at the Sheraton in Times Square. Please come check us out. We're going to be there with a table and also doing stuff. <laughs> I just forgot. Or we'll, yeah, be, we'll be doing stuff. We'll be filming stuff. We'll be. We may have a booth, maybe, or some. No, sort we of do. Table. We do. Look at you. We are two weeks away. Like, do we have a booth? We do. We will be there repping both the Gentleman Jack Crack and Wawa Villanelle. FlameCon is the world's largest queer Comic Con, returning uh, for its fifth year, and it's two days of comics, arts, and entertainment. Gay everywhere. Queer uh, everywhere. Lots of uh, independent content. And, yeah, um, that's actually. Number one, lots of yes. independent queer creative content. If you are around, come by and say hi. Also, there's going to be some very interesting swag, some of it free. So if you love Killing Eve, and at least half of you bitches do, I know you do. I know who's listening right now. Come the fuck by and get some Villain Eve swag. And if you love Ann Lister and Ann Walker and Gentleman Jack, bitch, come the fuck by. Terrence knows the thing I made today. He laughed ridiculously. Everyone I've yes. showed it to laughed. I, I can't like debut it yet because I just want you guys to see versus me trying to talk about it. But I think you guys will like it. It has to do with our little favorite Ann Walker of House Potched. That's all. Yes. That's all I'm going to put out there. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you for tuning in thank you for uh enjoying us ramble or just like do you think we got that one star review from that one person who was like three and a half hours what the fuck is this shit hey <laughs> uh, <pay>, perhaps because <laughs> you you pointed it out you were like who left the one star and i was like i don't know zero zero idea could be george for all i know <laughs> i feel like we call in john booth george and i don't 
I think that's mostly my fault, but um, we'll we'll address that. <laughs> three john george because george played for certainly started out the tree and i think what had me fucked up is that i read so many books and a lot of the books have the servants names and other things listed and then other things change and i just got confused i'm pretty sure we're dealing with john booth versus george booth but we usually call him older booth versus baby booth so right if anyone out there was listening and they're like yo what, what the fuck y'all saying um sorry <laughs> <laughs> i apologize oh uh so i was gonna try to do a close out shot Toast. Oh right! <laughs> just before, That's what we're doing. just before the we key the jaunty music after. Okay, so yes, what are we toasting to uh, at this close of uh, the nightcap at a sensible hour for once? Oh, I know, right? <laughs> well, it's only because Blood. I know that there's a little bite that I want to be able to lock down as well. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, I guess I could cheers to being fake sleep for thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You know I always you know I always have the vulgar fucking toast and you just fucking took it. All right, no, no, no. Okay, Please right, let me right, because right. I've actually no, no. I, I haven't fake sleep. Okay. I didn't lie about that, but I was just in a very similar situation more than once in my youth. But okay. Yeah. No, no, no. So okay, so then you can take that. Then I I would want. I just want to say that I was the Mrs. Barlow in many instances. <laughs> I wasn't like I wasn't out here trying to fake I was asleep, but I was getting a gravel. Anyway, whatever. Actually, I've been both as Marlo, Miss Ann Lister. You know what? Whatever. I'm sorry. Right. Please. Just, Let's get to the toast. I've lived. Okay. I've lived. <laughs> I've lived. And I've lived gaily. But yes. yeah. I'm just going to cheers to the Moss House. I feel like I can't wait to see what joy it brings. Ultimately. Like, that's going to be the thing I want. I remember your first toast. You like had a little mini essay. You were like, cheers to Miss Ann Lister. The Icarus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was is. so poetic. I mm-hmm. want to cheers to the... Uh, I'd, technically can't say that because i don't know if it'll happen or not because oh you know what before we cheers why don't you let everyone know where they can follow us and then that'll give me some oh, more time yeah. to ruminate on something else vulgar to add to cheersing oh, to being got sweet. it yes so <laughs> we can be found at gentleman jack crack on instagram uh it's gentleman crack on twitter because yes, they yes. like shorter names for they some do. reason on twitter it's on weird uh if you want to follow us on or write to us on the any of the Google, things any of the things it's i believe that is gentleman gentleman jack podcast, jack podcast at gmail or any of the dms or ims and some of you have been using it to say hey or hello and even if we don't always respond right away because sometimes we can be very busy during the day we see it we love you and we appreciate we it thank you thank you and there may be rumors of a tumblr but i'm not allowed to go on that because you're of not allowed all to go on the it spoilers to be fair i've not been on it a lot recently either although i feel like oh we were added by someone on Tumblr. That's what uh, the notification brought me in there. And I was like, oh my God. And I just put like a gift that said, excited gay screaming. Like someone's <laughs> mentioning Gentleman Jack Crack. What the fuck? But yeah, we will be more active on Tumblr soon, soon come. So if my toast was to be to add Lista, the legend, the dream, the diviner of the Moss House. Defeater of petticoats. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. You can add I'm that to so, yours, actually. I will. I will. Uh, Let me not interrupt. The Miss Honey of her generation. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit. Uh, May she always whip her poor boys into shape. Whether they're like fettling the carts May she always be dirty and sweaty. And that's not true because a woman should not always be dirty and sweaty. But sometimes, sometimes. I'm sorry. I keep encroaching on your toes. I'm sorry. No, I keep interrupting your toes. That was one of my better, like, looks that I loved. Yes. No, it was was a look. It was like Villanelle in the Boots. 
post Amsterdam. Yeah, which is one of my favorite looks. Just um, you know, uh, you know. Let me not get into how most of my looks on women aren't actually in gowns, but unless of course it's. I mean, can you think of who I'm going to say? Georg. <laughs> 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 um, for those of you who, who haven't listened to Wobble Villanelle, you haven't heard my screaming about my childhood crush for Eleanor Parker. If you don't know who that is, Google her. Watch The Sound of Music. Learn yourself something. She looks gorgeous in a yellow dress. But anyway, is it now time for my toast? Oh, yeah. I've ran onto so many tangents. Okay, let me get my glass. Here's to pretending to be asleep when grubbles are going down here's to <laughs> here's to defeating thine petticoats of all the women one tries to grubble and here is to getting the fuck over mariana and getting under the petticoats of little miss thirsty and walker of house parched oh i love all of that actually yay salute all right Oof. oh good shit all right until next time guys Cue the jaunty music! Cue the jaunty music, bitch! Bye-bye, friends. Regency-era lesbians. Oh, my God.